This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome, everybody, to episode one of You've Got to Be Getting Me, a TNA History podcast where we cover a month of TNA history every episode. Joining me, as always, is my wonderful co-host. I say, as always, this is the first episode, but you, you've probably heard us before. Liam Jones! Liam, how are you doing? Oh, I am here, ready to talk about all of the important issues. I'm ready to talk about total non-stop action. I'm here to talk about ring kicking. I'm here to talk about impact wrestling. I'm here to talk about global force wrestling. And I'm here to talk about the 2006 Home and Away finale. All Wheels Wrestling. You missed out All Wheels. That's the most important one. But that one didn't never actually run a show. <laughs> But it did do a pilot, which is available to watch on the internet. Damn. All Wheels Wrestling is what I would have made pro wrestling. All Wheels Wrestling actually seems like something that would have come out of the first episode of NWA TNA. It, like, legitimately, how did it take them nine years to do a NASCAR spinoff when they had Sterling Martin and Hermie Sadler there at the very beginning? Exactly. You see, people like to say that, you know... Impact doesn't plan things out in the long term. They were planting the seeds from the beginning. Uh, for the NASCAR wrestling crossover, which is basically the, the Sean Cedor wrestling promotion. <laughs> it, it can't be helped if everyone else wasn't ready for that idea, okay? Mm. Came around too soon. Someday somebody will see that All Wheels Wrestling part. I think it's on Vimeo or something, and they'll be like, oh... Isn't the motorsports, like, hot again now? Is it? I hate motorsports. I, I cannot tolerate motorsports. It's the most boring thing on earth. That it's recently having a surge in popularity. Because of some Netflix bullshit or something. It's always some Netflix bullshit, isn't it? Well, that, that's where everyone gets, like, excited about things. Like, people cared about, uh... I don't know. I, I, did, I had no example when I started that sentence. <laughs> no, there was, the, there was the big chess one after the Queen's Game. Oh, yes, there was the chess one. Everybody got into chess. You know, people started caring about problematic wrestling. <laughs> Dark Side of the Ring came out. And, then... mm. and you had the Pokemon card craze of 2020 because of influencers buying some Pokemon cards and then driving up the prices for regular people who actually like Pokemon cards. You know what's insane about all that? Like, they've only just started recovering from people, like, buying out every bit of stock from the stores as they would come out. Now is when people are, like, when stores are finally, like, able to get stocks in for stuff again. It's not even just Pokemon. It's just every card-based thing was just sold out immediately. I feel so sorry for people who, like, who is super into Yu-Gi-Oh! or super into Pokemon or super into baseball cards. And it's, like, usually a hobby that involves, like, a lot of luck and a lot of chance because, obviously, a lot of these cards come in random packs and you have to buy a couple to get what you want. Don't buy the packs. (laughs) but Buy singles. That is the way to do it. Not anymore, apparently. (laughs) Well, to be fair, I don't think the singles market really, like, bottomed out because I think a lot of that comes directly from vendors who just, like, get slabs of these things and then they open them all and get all, all the singles that people want. But surely that, like, if people... Have, so how is it work that people want? Do they just want it for, like, unboxings? Um, well, the Pokemon stuff actually does have stuff that's rare and worth money. Like, other card games are less so. Like, they, they still have stuff that's worth, like, a couple hundred bucks on, like, release, but that's more so a Pokemon thing, to my understanding. Especially, like, that's also a lot of... 
vintage stuff as opposed to modern day stuff. But people are still buying fucking mo- these modern day packs. So I I don't know. It's it's clearly blown up. Like even my local store, not the one in the the city where I am, but in the my hometown. Um, they like I went when I was down there over the start of the year. It was they were stacked with stuff, and I haven't seen them like their card section was essentially like just this glass box behind the vendor. <laughs> and now it's like a whole wall is dedicated to trading card game stuff. I wonder, is there any TNA cards that are worth that much money? Uh, no, I know that the, um, people are into the WWE ones. Cause I, I, I do have a bunch of the very old TNA trading cards from like 2010 lying around. What about the ones that just came out? I, I didn't get any of those, even though I wrote the back of the cards. I didn't get I didn't get any of them. So if they're worth money, I know that some people like to collect rookie cards, like first wrestling. Like this is the first card they had, that kind of stuff. I know that like the Hornswoggle one was pretty <laughs> pricey for a while, but that's just how collecting works. It's always the weirdest ones that uh, people end up wanting the most. This is what people came for, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, obviously people came to when they click. Oh, TNA podcast. I'm going to listen a lot about uh, trading cards. That's where we're certain, certain, certain suddenly the major bros. I'm Cardona. You're Myers. Wait a minute. I mean, actually, yeah, fine. Yeah, I gave you the cooler one of the two. Why are you mad at me? I don't know. I wanted to be the star. I wanted to be wrestling Nick Gage. I just want to be wrestling in the half long tights, half short tights. That's Hell all I want. Yes. My he should career. bring them back for the GCW match. That would be the perfectly obnoxious move. But yes, let's, let's let's get things back on topic in TNA. This isn't the third episode when we can start just going off on tangents. This is the <laughs> the first one where we've got to, you know, explain things. So so every episode we'll cover, as we, I mentioned at the top, a month of TNA history. Starting this episode, of course, with June 2002, the month in which TNA began. And uh, the next one, July, uh, one after that, August. We'll talk about all the shows. We'll talk about all the big things that happened that month. Plus, if you really, really like the sound of our voices, we have a bunch of Patreon-exclusive content as well. Which you can find in the link in the, the description of this podcast where we will have a watch-along of NWA TNA pay-per-view number one. Uh, we'll also have a written review of that show going up, as well as a written review of NWAT and APV number two. And Liam, mm. uh, you'll get access to our spreadsheet. That's the $1 tier. The watch along is the $10 tier. You can get our show notes. And we'll also have a weekly show because this show will be every two weeks because there's a lot of weekly pay-per-views to watch. So doing it weekly would probably burn us out very quickly. But in those <laughs> weeks in between, there'll be a Patreon exclusive series. The first of which is... Monday War Games, where we reply the old Wednesday War Games to the 2010 Monday Night War, watching Raw and Impact. So that's very exciting. But yeah, that's that's the basic layout of everything you're getting from this podcast. But we're here today to talk about the foundation of TNA, June 2002. Let's start with them. Tell me, tell me about your relationship with TNA wrestling. I remember the first episode I ever watched, which was Raven's Return to Feud with Abyss and Stevie Richards. So end of 2009. Yeah, I remember it being on paid TV service that we had. And I remember, like, being really into it because it was so different. Because he he threw a fireball in that segment, right? Yeah, right? So, like, I had seen... At that point, right, I was 12. You're obnoxiously young. Yeah, like, whatever I was. I was around that. And I had seen ECW. I had seen... Like, early uh, WWE, WWF stuff. 
but I hadn't seen anything else, really. I think, actually, no, I had watched, like, one Chris Hero Ring of Honor match randomly because he was on Border Patrol, <laughs> and I googled who Chris Hero was, <laughs> and I was like, oh, Chris Hero versus Tyler Black, and then I was like, this is 40 minutes. What the, why, wrestling doesn't go this long, <laughs> and then I got, very, and I kind of clicked off of it, and I was like, wrestling should be, like, 10 minutes and have Vladimir Kozlov in it. Like, this, this isn't what it should be. This Chris Hero guy just doesn't get it. He's gone nowhere. This isn't what wrestling should be. Uh, yeah, you, sh- you should have seen, like, the mental gymnastics I went through when a Daniel Bryan <laughs> debuted, and I was like, who's a Bryan Danielson? It was a whole thing. Yeah, oh, you were listening to Michael Cole, and he's like, oh, this guy. Was It wasn't even that. I w- like the- Bryan was the guy that made me actually go and watch indie stuff, right? <laughs> so that was, like... That was more like, oh, it felt like I was in the know. Because, <laughs> like, you know, for me, like, my friends, we all watched WWE and we knew TNA. That's it. That's all we knew. So, like, I was like, oh, I, I know this Brian, this before times. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, I'm so uh, online. <laughs> Look at me go. But back to TNA, I remember, um, <laughs> when it, actually, what's really funny was I would go to class and... I had one friend who had a bunch of TNA DVDs and he just, he gave them all to me that like that month <laughs> because he was getting out of wrestling. And I remember like we were having, a, we're talking about TNA and he's like, yeah, I like it, but there's too many, too much talking going on, which is funny as we were all the WWE guys, but we, when we turned on TNA, we're like, there's too many angles. Which is funny given the name of the show is Total Nonstop Action. Oh, uh, clearly wasn't living up to it at that point. But yeah, yeah f- for me personally, like after that, I tried to watch it whenever I could. But it, it was bo- it always bounced from channel to channel here, and it was always on at like ten p.m. So like I would get to it if I could find it, <laughs> if it was on a channel that we still had. But um, it was actually really good for a while there because SmackDown used to precede Impact on the channel where I'd watch SmackDown. So wait, they're on the same channel? Yeah, that's very rare in wrestling, isn't it? Mm, they were on Fox 8, right? And I'd go and I'd watch... I'd go to my grandparents and I'd watch SmackDown on a Thursday. And then as soon as SmackDown finished, it would go straight into Impact. And so, like, that was, like... that. It didn't last long like that. But for a while there, I was like, yo, this is really cool. I get a bit of both. <laughs> and, like, because I didn't watch Raw, I was only a SmackDown guy. I was like, this is my whole day made. And then after that, I... Wait, wait, why were you only a SmackDown guy? I didn't like Raw. Well, that's fair. SmackDown had, like, the better mid-card, I think. Because it had, like, Morrison, Hardy, the aforementioned Vladimir Kozlov. Like, all guys that I was a massive fan of. The Brian Kendrick. Mm. So, I was a SmackDown ECW guy. ECW, I think, was actually the show that bumped Impact out of that time slot. Wow. That, that's Christian's fault. Christian, yeah. Christian betraying TNA yeah. by jumping to WCW and then kicking them out of their time slot. Which was then actually replaced by uh, nothing for a while and then replaced by real NXT, not like uh, talk show NXT. Yeah, you never got the reality show? Um, we did a little bit, but that was mostly online. And you didn't get NXT Redemption? Uh, I'd watched a lot of NXT Redemption, actually, because it was... It did show up occasionally on... Uh, TV, but I think that was at the point where I was like online trying to watch anything I could basically. Mm. So I watched all of NXT Redemption and I watched a, t- a shit ton of like 2010 superstars. So, like, that's my big purview there. You want to talk about some Trent Beretta, Kurt Hawkins matches? I'm your man. Excuse me, we'll only talk about a couple of Greg Marashulo matches when we get to them in 2013. <laughs> Obviously. To wrap it all back up real quickly, but after I had seen those episodes on paid tv i would 
You know what's real? I want to hear a f- real funny fucking TNA story that I have. Go on. At my uh, local, it was it was some like video game store, right? That also sold a bunch of things. They sold TNA DVDs, right? But <laughs> do you know where they put the TNA DVDs? Oh no, where? On the same row as the hentai. <laughs> oh well, that makes sense though. It's 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 total non. It's TNA Liam. It's yeah. So I remember like. <laughs> they had like like hentai DVDs and the anime DVDs below them, and then they had like TNA on the top in like the don't touch row. <laughs> it was very funny. Do you legitimately think there's somebody there who got a bunch of t- wrestling DVDs on like you know the discount, and they got them in the door? It's like oh TNA, oh that's obviously pretty racy. We got to put that in the racy section. My assumption is that they thought it was like UFC, like f- like f- actual fights. You know what I mean? Like I think they thought it was like gory. MMA stuff and like we're gonna put that up on the top row because you know who would buy that stuff did Jeff Jarrett's do it shoot fights yeah basically right well he was so there you go yeah and then I went to Sanity Music and that's where I used to buy all my TNA DVDs so I was a I was pretty like obviously you know not the biggest TNA guy on the podcast but I was fairly into it from like that once I was like 13, I was fairly into it, buying any DVD I could see, buying the, watching the hell out of my Best of the X Division DVD until the point, until like those CDs were ruined. Yeah, the Best of like the Tag Teams DVD. Like, because you gotta remember, Australia Internet now is horrific, right? Australian Internet in t- 2010, it was impossible. You, they, it was, you could barely watch anything. So that was still very much DVD culture then. Like, I'd st- I was still buying. From like 08 to 11, I was buying my WWE and TNA DVDs, and that was the only way I watched wrestling. And 2013 was like buying every PWG DVD, and that was it. <laughs> Before like I could, I would ne- I would never torrent things because that's illegal. But if I had the ability to, I would have started doing that a little later. So when did you fall out of love with TNA, Liam? When did you betray the source of your podcast? That would have been probably consistently stopped watching it around 2015 as much as you know like the last when the last stuff i was really really into was when aj left really that broke your heart too much well i I still kept watching but it just it wasn't even because of aj i just remember that was the point when like he was gone was when i stopped watching it as much because before that i was watching it like weekly and then i (sighs) you could honestly say like EC3's entire run was when I stopped watching, basically. And it didn't have anything to do with him, but that was just the the time period encapsulated. Like most people, I think, I'd parachuted in for anything that was notable, and then that was it. Yeah, not to skip ahead to January 2014 and the the podcast, but I do think that's the point at which a lot of people kind of gave themselves permission to stop watching. Mm. Because within two weeks of each other, AJ left, then Sting left. And those were the two like most heavily pushed, heavily featured acts along with Kurt Angle for the best part of the last 10 years of the company's history. And they both left within two weeks of each other. And I think people were just like, okay, I'm done. No episode of Impact has been watched by as many people as the last episode that featured Sting. They never did a better number than that episode ever again. I wonder if um, there is some relationship with the increase in popularity of New Japan. And the ease of availability of stuff like your PWG and your Ring of Honor. I wonder if people started to find their alternative uh, pro wrestling fix elsewhere. 
around the same time. I don't even think it's those specific companies. I just think it's the change of the internet era where it's not even Ring of Honor you're competing with or New Japan. It's also Progress or Defy or Evolve or RevPro. It's literally every company under the sun now is available at your fingertips, most of which are very easy to do so. You can just log on to a streaming server. You can log on to IWTV and watch all the wrestling you want these days. So I think it just reached this stage where, you know, in 2006, it was WWE, Ring of Honor, TNA. WWE, easiest to access, TNA, second easiest to access, RH. The, the least easy to access, I suppose, at the time. So, yes. like, if you wanted to watch, you know, PWG, you'd have to, as you said, as you mentioned, you'd have to buy a DVD, which is a barrier to entry most people aren't going to cross. Whereas now, if you want to watch PWG, mm. it's very easy to find PWG, both legally and illegally, if you'd like. So, people just do that instead. And TNA just didn't have enough anymore as they lost Styles, as they lost Sting, as they lost Angle, as they lost Joe, as they lost Rude, as they lost Storm, as they lost all the people that people associated as uh, as backbones of the company. People just moved on, moved on to different things, and maybe, maybe moved on to no wrestling whatsoever. I'm interested. Uh, I'd like to do like market research to try and find out just what percentage of AEW's current audience used to watch TNA, because it's probably not insubstantial. I imagine it's a lot, because... No matter what, right, TNA lost a lot of, you know, it lost a, a large majority of, it, of its fan base. Mm-hmm. Which is basically going to be the story of this podcast. <laughs> it still managed to stick in wrestling people's brains. It was still in the zeitgeist to them because of, like, it was, you know, it left an, it left an impact. <laughs> well, hey, oh, it's impossible to avoid. Listen, I, I, if there's one thing I've learned, it's it's impossible not to make impact puns. So get used to them. Because no matter what, like, I talked to any of my friends who used to watch wrestling, still watch wrestling. They may not have known a Ring of Honor. They may not have known a New Japan. They all knew TNA. It was firmly planted within their heads of like, this was the number two number two company and it wasn't as good <laughs> that's basically what the thing and i think a lot of that comes from you know when people did do that large exodus i think a lot of it came from we don't want to watch wwe light and it'll be really interesting to once we do reach that stage in the podcast of those years to go back and listen to this episode where we talk about it and see like was it as much wwe light at the time as we thought it was or what, was that an over exaggeration? Was that something to do with WWE being having being on an actually a fairly decent run? Because like 2013, 2014, WWE was pretty good, hmm. and then it fell off for a bit, and then came back in that 2016 and start of 2017, and then just went crashing down. It's hard to be WWE light when WWE is bad. It's even harder to be WWE light when WWE is actually firing on all cylinders and is good because everything you do is going to be compared and not, you don't even have the cynicism of the fan base to back you up. Yeah. Because, like, I, I think something that, you know, I do look forward to getting into years and years down the track is the whole... Com- everything was compared. You know what I mean? Everything hmm. TNA did was an instant comparison. And by the be fair, it wasn't entirely not their own fault. But there was also some big, like, jumps where, you know... Aries was compared to Punk the entire time, right? And Young was compared to Brian, right? Like, and that whole thing. And it's just, it felt like a lot of people were just like, I'm going to dissuade this thing immediately because I already have the thing and you're not providing that alternative. You're just being it. 
the, the, the Ares example there is dumb, but the young one is obviously... Oh, young was a direct, like, response to WWE. <laughs> like, that one is... It was the week after Daniel Bryan won the belt, or the week of, and it's like, yeah, Eric Young won the belt. Now it's like, wait a minute. So I think as soon as TNA ceased being an alternative to, like, everyone, that's when it was like, oh, we have no reason to be here anymore. It's not the alternative. It's not doing anything different to separate itself. It's just more... WWE programming and worse WWE programming. Significantly worse WWE programming. So before we begin, I suppose I should tell you about my relationship with TNA Wrestling, Liam. Oh, do you have one? Uh, no, I've never watched it. This is my first time going through all these shows. <laughs> what, what a twist that would be. It's just like, oh no, I've never seen this stuff before. <laughs> You're just really good at studying. <laughs> I can just check cage match and Wikipedia pages very quickly. Yeah. So, Garrett Kidney, um, did, you, did you ever, you ever watch TNA? I like all people, I would have grown up watching a ton of WWE. And then, like, 2006 was the closest I was to being one of those people who just stopped watching wrestling because WWE just bored me to tears and there was no one there anymore I liked. And I was like, uh, maybe I don't watch a ton of wrestling. And it's probably, uh, thinking back, it's probably the year I watched the least of WWE. I'd still watch, like, WrestleMania because who doesn't watch WrestleMania? But that was the stage where I was, like, teetering on the edge of not being a wrestling fan anymore before I discovered the wonders of TNA wrestling, which I would have watched, like, bits and pieces of before, but it would always have been, like, the just the dumbest shit from the Asylum era. It would be like, oh, the Dup Cup. And it's like, what is this thing? And why does it exist? Uh, whereas when I got TV over here, it was on Bravo at the time. And the I, I watched the the November primetime special that had a barbed wire cage match. Great match. Very bloody match. Kurt Angle's debut was on that show. And then you saw people in the X Division like AJ Styles, like Chris Saban, like Christopher Daniels. And like, oh, there's actually good wrestling in the world. Not just the same old WWE televised bullshit that's and even like 2006 was broadly there's good stuff at WWE in 2006 but it's still WWE there's nothing like not WWE about it so when if you're disenfranchised with that there's nothing left for you 06 07 is like arguably the most WWE WWE is too because it's pure like just big jacked stars with some edgy content and women doing sexy things and just you know big blood uh, money still like it's just that is like it's, it's South Park debris right you know what I mean like that's, that's 100% what that era is so that my brother went to Boston with my dad on holiday and he brought me back as a present the best of the X Division volume 2 on DVD which is the cool DVD that has that like animated cover where all the wrestlers are animated forms and I watched that DVD like same similar to you like back and forth multiple times and like that's what I fell in love with. I fell in love with the X Division. I fell in love with Alex Shelley and Chris Saban and Sanjay Dutt and Shark Boy and Petey Williams and AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels and Smojo and all those cool wrestlers and I decided there and then that I would adopt TNA Wrestling Liam as a cause for better or worse <laughs> for what clearly means the remainder of my life until I die and I've been watching every week ever since um, because when I, I wouldn't have the patience to wait until it aired on TV over here. So I would watch it on Daily Motion in the era ah. when, you could, when you could only watch in like parts. So it's like Impact Part 1, which is yeah. 8 minutes, oh. and Impact Part 2, which is 8 minutes. And then you can't find Impact Part 3 because it turns out it wasn't uploaded properly or, or it got copyright striked. So you have to go find the, the, the third 8 minutes of the show. Kids these days don't know how good they have it, Liam, <laughs> that they can just steal things easily as opposed to back in the day when stealing things was actually much harder i must be the last era of it right mm. of people who actually had to like hunt for things on the internet yeah. to try and find them these people don't know about the ditch do they 
these kids these days. They don't know about no ditch. They don't know about um, using weird software that lets you download videos straight from websites. <laughs> or finding those websites, those like weird uh, sites that stream these shows in parts. Yeah. That like you would always run the risk of having a horrible virus that destroys your computer forever. And you'd get it. And it's worth it to watch like parts of The Apprentice or something. <laughs> something stupid. Mm. As opposed to now, you could just download it with the click of a button or stream it on a website legally. It's so much easier <laughs> these days. Back in those days, back when 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 we had to struggle and suffer to watch things we wanted to watch. I have a little, another little fun fact about TNA in my formative years of being a wrestling fan. It was the first thing I ever pirated was wow. an Impact pay-per-view. <laughs> what show was it? It was the one that had the Brian Kendrick debut and the Mr. Anderson debut. So Genesis 2010. Yeah, that was the first show I ever torrented in my life. I have to report you actually now. I have to take you in for stealing TNA shows. I'm so sorry. Even though I just admitted to doing it myself via Daily Motion. But Daily Motion is a that that's the fault of obviously the person who uploaded it, not mine. Yes. Yeah. I'm just we're just consumers. But in by that same logic, whoever uploaded that uh, torrent file, you know, it's not my fault for downloading it. It's their fault for uploading it. Exactly. Uh, so then uh, I would have covered TNA. Consistent. I started writing about TNA in the summer of 2009, which would have been around the year you started watching. Then I mm-hmm. would have started reviewing it weekly from 2012 through 2017. Then work for the company. Yeah, that's that's my journey with TNA wrestling from from beginning to now. And I'm interested to go back and watch it all because like the story of TNA is the story of unfulfilled potential. Even like we're going to talk about these first two pay per views that took place in June 2002, and I think that's very much the story of unfulfilled potential in many ways. It's interesting to see the, the ideas that developed and didn't develop, the things, the missed opportunities. And just you have the distance these days where the dumb stuff doesn't quite make you as mad anymore. Well, there's some stuff that makes me mad on these shows, but for very different reasons. But the bad booking stuff is more funny than like infuriating these days. You can watch it and go, oh, look at them. They're falling over their feet again, aren't they? (laughs) But it's like, it's not depressing anymore. I think it also helps that Impact is in as good of a position as it's been in as many years now you know what i mean it's mm. like if it was if impact now was in the dregs you'd, it'd still be kind of sad but like they're doing well for themselves now so it's kind of you can go back and watch this stuff and go well it's so at least to this point of you know the 18th of june 2021 impact is doing well so i don't feel bad going back and watching stuff when they weren't <laughs> yeah because there was like the era from like 2014 through 2016 where you know, they lost Spike, they moved to Destination America, they lost Destination America, they moved to Pop, and they were on the verge of going out of business pretty much every other week, as opposed to the last, like, three years, where it's just been stable, which is unlike TNA. Stable, having a consistent influx of new, exciting talent, talent that they, uh, for the most part, seem to be capitalizing on, and, you know, it's just, it's it's good. <laughs> it's, it's nice that it's, that impact is, is has found its feet, found its place in the wrestling zeitgeist yet again. So let's get started. Let's teleport ourselves back to the to, to, to the summer of 2001, Liam, when I was a wee nine-year-old and you were a wee four-year-old. I hadn't turned four. I would have been three. If you think about the, the, that landscape where wrestling was at that stage, WWE had bought WCW. They had bought ECW. Ring of Honor had not been formed yet. Wrestling was in a pretty dire place. You know, it was WWE and everything else was tiny or terrible. And 
there wasn't a lot of opportunities out there if you couldn't work for WWE, which was a bit of a problem for Jeff Jarrett, given he was publicly fired on the final episode of Nitro, and he held up WWE for 150 grand against China. So he needed places to work. And I think that's like the real genesis of TNA. They'll always be like, oh, you know, there's there's creating an alternative to give people opportunities in wrestling. But I think push comes to shove. Jeff Jarrett knew he needed somewhere where he could wrestle regularly. And that did not exist in the year 2001. And, and it didn't exist really in the year 2002 either. We'll talk about a couple of alternatives that popped up and died. But he put he had to he had to put his money where his mouth is because otherwise he probably wouldn't have been able to wrestle for the rest of his career because obviously he did come back to WWE he was what inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2018 and made an actual in-ring return in the Royal Rumble and I think it was 2019 still has a job there and he still has a job there today indeed so it wasn't like iced out for the rest of his life but he was iced out from what was it 1999 to 2018 that's a pretty long period of not being able to work there hey Jeff Jarrett stay winning though let's give him let's give the man credit where it's yeah, the, the genesis of TNA really does come from he needed somewhere to work. And mm. there, as I mentioned, there were a couple of alternatives. There was stuff that popped up to try and fill the void post-WCW, which was World Wrestling All-Stars, which is a bunch of pay-per-views, uh, many of which were in Australia. Oh. Did you go to any of those or hear about any of those? I was four. You, you might have went to things. No. Because it was founded by Andrew McManus, who is a big music promoter. Andrew McManus, by the way, founder of World Wrestling All-Stars, was arrested in Australia in connection with alleged importation of 300 kilograms of cocaine and money laundering in 2015. So... I'm a fan of that. Fair enough. Those are the kind of people that were getting into wrestling in, in the year 2001, 2002. So they would have done regular pay-per-views. They would have done weekly pay-per-views, but they would have done like wee, big quarterly pay-per-views with big stars like Randy Savage and Scott Steiner and Sting and Jeff Jarrett. Uh, and some of them, like, it was basically a, a precursor to TNA in a lot of ways. It had a lot of the similar talent, but it was going for these big, like, tentpole pay-per-views as opposed to smaller weekly pay-per-views. How many uh, shows did they get through? Oh, I think it was like... 10? Let me check. So you're saying it'd be a fine series <laughs> for us to track down the World Wrestling All-Star shows? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I, it would be interesting to watch. Those shows look terrible, but I'm sure you could watch them. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you could watch them. <laughs> uh, according to Cage Match, they had 30 shows, which is more than I thought. Oh, I think no, lot- that's way too much then. I'm not committing to that. No, I think a lot of them were live events. I think that in terms of pay-per-views, ah. they did a lot fewer, because they did the Reckoning, the Retribution, the, re- the Eruption, the Revolution, and the Inception. Revolution? So, wow. yeah, I, I think there was five trendsetters pay-per-views which by the way the, their first show the inception uh, in uh, sydney uh, has a cage match rating of 2.5 that's good that's good stuff right there that's what you want to see uh, the main event of which was jeff jarrett versus road dog in a cage i hope they were playing off of the like 90s wf angle uh, probably were that's all they ever did with jeff jarrett and road dog they also had hoovy against psychosis in a ladder match that's not bad i suppose hoovy of course has a a very tepid history with Australia. Uh, yeah, <laughs> big fan of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and Australian law enforcement. There's a battle royal that three of which of the participants are just question mark on cage match. And if the Germans don't know, nobody knows. It's, it was probably Kangaroo, Jim, Outback, Bob, and Terry. <laughs> so, like, those shows kind of flopped. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They'll just leave that there. You can Giant be racist legends. toward Australia because you're Australian. It's fine. 
That's how it works. World Wrestling All-Stars didn't really get off the ground, and Jeff Jarrett wasn't happy with how that was being run. He thought it, would be, it, it should be more episodic. He thought there should be more stories, which informed the kind of product he ended up creating. Man does love stories. Yes, that that does make wrestling better, usually, to be fair. Eh. <laughs> giving just matches you just want your ring of honor yeah i was actually like i don't i don't want to keep taking you off of your thing it's very quickly but do you ever wonder like if your brother had to come back with like <laughs> some ring of honor like final battle 2003 or something <laughs> some best of samoa joe dvd yeah would you have been like this big roh guy maybe i would have maybe that would have changed the fate of my life forever that would have changed the wrestling business forever or maybe i just would have been like this shit sucks i would have just <laughs> abandoned wrestling forever where's my production value i would have been like you burying chris hero being like this isn't wrestling 40 minutes all right, I'll now shut up and let you go through the rest of this. No, you can derail me all you want. That's the fun. There was also the XWF, which was like Hulk Hogan led, but the big problem was was they recorded like a full season of TV and then went to shop it around. But by the time they were like shopping into networks, Hulk had already gone back to WWF. Kurt Hennig was one of their big stars who already went back to WWF. So they were like going into TV meetings with TV executives showing them these tapes. It's like that has Hulk Hogan on these shows, which I'm sure would have piqued interest. But then it's like, oh, so he's going to be on the show? It's like, he's on this season. It's like, what about other seasons? It's like, don't you worry about that. I think I've seen some of this. Oh, yeah, the DVD's out there. I have it on my shelf here. Wasn't, didn't Punk do something with this too? I, well, that would have been very early. It would have been 2001, maybe? I think maybe it was some undercard stuff. Uh, like, because it was, it was kind of like another weird proto-TNA thing where it had a lot of indie guys who were like just good wrestlers on the undercard if i remember correctly yeah but i guess like that was kind of the 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 whole thing of the time wasn't it it was like who can we get <laughs> who's available because uh, that's the thing we're going to talk about when, when i'm talking about the founding of tna it's like just that indie scene which like there is a lot of very promising young wrestlers coming through or you have the likes of Samoa Joe breaking through. You have the likes of Christopher Daniels, who's been there for a decade. He's not a young wrestler. But he's he's breaking through. Obviously, the, the Ring of Honor cohort, the likes of The Amazing Red, the likes of Loki, the likes of uh, Brian Danielson. So, like, there, there is a new generation that's coming. But, like, if you look at the talent landscape in the year 2001, which is even pre-Ring of Honor, you're just like, oh, God, wrestling is doomed. Yeah, and but also, it's like, sure, there's a lot of really good guys on the come up but like where are your stars to carry the brand that's, that's the other big issue like a lot of them were still being paid by wcw still being paid by time warner so they weren't mm. working anywhere and not being willing to drop those contracts in any way like i'm just gonna or not being able to it's like i got i got nah well some of them could that's the thing ddp gave up his to go work for the fed and look how that worked for him so a lot of them like the steiners and the bookers and the, or not the bookers the stings of the world that didn't take the buyouts and they're just like uh we'll just uh coast here because Time Warner is paying us out for the rest of our contract, and I can't blame them. I'd probably do the same thing. Uh, well, it worked out for DDP, so. Yeah, he had a great career in the World Wrestling Federation. So yeah, XWF flopped, World Wrestling All-Stars flopped. There was no real national alternative to WWE in, in 2002. Obviously, Ring of Honor was founded in, in uh, February of 2002? February, right? Yeah, February. And, you know, they, sure. they had their niche, they had their thing, but it was never remotely in the same league as WWE, and it was, it was never intended to be either, that's the thing. I'm not being like, Ring of Honor couldn't compete with WWE, they weren't trying to. They were doing their own thing, they were doing their small-scale independent, they cr- helped create, like, the boom of independent wrestling, which 
kind of still lives uh, this day. Let's see how that goes in the next couple of years. So Jeff Jarrett, Bob Ryder, and Jerry Jarrett went fishing in 2001 and pitched this concept of a pay-per-view-only wrestling company. Because the big issue with World Wrestling All-Stars, the big issue with XWF in the end, was that they couldn't get television and then died. So they were like, how do we circumvent that? We're not going to be able to get TV either. So we're just going to do a pay-per-view-only wrestling company, which is a terrible idea. (laughs) It's just an abysmal, stupid idea. Because, like, the backbone of pro wrestling for the prior, like, 15 years was we have our free television on which we will promote live events and we will promote pay-per-view. And that's how you got people to actually watch the pay-per-views. You built the matches on television and then aired the matches on pay-per-view and people bought the pay-per-view. But without the free television, the free vehicle to promote that pay-per-view, how do people find out about your product? Especially in 2002, where you don't have the hope of gaining internet buzz. Not that the internet didn't exist. Yeah, because the internet didn't exist, as <laughs> yes. we all know. Because we have so many of those those posts, like, what if the, what if the internet existed in 2002? What if the internet was around when Jeff Jarrett was running a company, eh? Yeah, he would have been fine. Everything would have went well. (laughs) People would have loved it. Because, like, so much of the marketing and buzz for these shows did come from the internet. Like, you see Jeff Jarrett and Jerry Jarrett and and Jeremy Borash doing interviews with the Wrestling Observer, doing extensive interviews with PW Torch about the founding of this company. That's how they got their word out. But, like, the internet was not remotely the force it is today. It didn't have social media. Stuff couldn't go viral. If, If you wanted to get your word out, it's slow and steady and it's through other people's platforms that's the only way you could do it back in 2002 so the idea of doing this weekly pay-per-view model where you want to sell a minimum of 50,000 pay-per-views every single week it, it was it was not particularly viable do you think that would be a idea that would function better in 2021 because like you know a nine dollar price point isn't the worst well it's basically like the the backbone of the streaming model when you think about it like instead of Mm. paying nine dollars per pay-per-view you pay nine dollars a month to progress you pay nine dollars a month to new japan and you get all of their shows for the month so it's more affordable and it's more accessible so it kind of works now like if, if new japan because the new japan did charge piecemeal per show if you remember back in the ustream days and people paid mm-hmm. it but not in large numbers I, I don't think people would pay for each individual new japan show like on a 9.99 like uh price tag on, on a show by show basis i don't think that would work i don't think people pay for that but as in terms of like the the here's everything and you get all the the archives that does work and people can find like viable models on both an independent level and a mainstream level with that these days i think it's curious too because there there is some examples of companies doing that now gcw each show Mm. is a single purchase on fight and then you go with to go back to new japan they do like their g1 or their wrestle kingdom specials right where you buy not each show individually, but it's some sort of overarching price point that you will get all these shows for. So I think it's it's funny. It's like for a, a, an idea that didn't work then, there's like there is still traces of it in 2021's wrestling um, production. Yeah, even if you look last year, the that NWA offshoot was it UWF that Dave Marquez won basically did the weekly pay per view model. Now UWF is. Uh, Glate. 
uh, whatever it was called, it was something. You know, you know the company I'm talking about, the the fake NWA that was on pay per view last summer. Yeah, I'll find it. Give me one sec. <laughs> so yeah, they they literally they did the weekly pay per view model. They did a pay per view every week, and it clearly died to death because they started giving away everything for free like two weeks after it ended. So they clearly generated no interest whatsoever, and it didn't work. And like you mentioned, GCW, like it is obviously operating on a much smaller scale. United Wrestling Network. Uh, so UWN, not UWF. I was letter off. Um, <laughs> Very different things, though. To be fair, hey, if they did shoot fighting between Damian Sandow and freaking Eli Drake, maybe people would have watched it. You know, I've just clicked on the UWF thing for a little sidebar. Uh-huh. A match that happened on UWF Primetime Live Four: Chris Dickinson versus Max Caster. Well, there you go. Clearly, AEW was watching. Yeah, recruiting the UWN talent, not the UWF talent. Mm. No Minoru Tanaka. So yeah, they, they started with the weekly paper model. As I, I completely forgot where I was after you mentioned Minoru Tanaka. My brain clearly is like, ooh, Minoru Tanaka. Yeah. Uh, so they, they decided on that model. As like the, the real the reason they did it at the end of the day is they had no other option. Like the only other option was to do like a Ring of Honor approach where it's much smaller scale, where it's much more like we're gonna build this kind of grassroots promotion from the ground up. It's gonna be much more uh, low budget, more based on independent wrestling talent, cheap talent. But they wanted the swing for the fences. They wanted a national company. It was always intended to be a national company. I would recommend there's basically two primary sources now for the foundation of TNA. The one I would most recommend is Jerry Jarrett's book on the foundation and development of TNA, which is very easy to get these days. You can just get it on Amazon. Or like Jeff Jarrett has just done a three-part series on the foundation of TNA, in which he basically just reads his dad's book and occasionally corrects it, so just buy the book. But I, f- I find it interesting. The thing I find most interesting listening to that, aside from the fact that they don't admit, basically, that the, the weekly pay-per-view idea was a calamitous mistake that failed very quickly before they were bailed out by Panda. But the thing they don't talk about that kind of drives me mad, they don't talk about what like their actual vision for TNA was supposed to be. We're, we're starting this wrestling company, which is cool. It's a cool idea. You, the, like, you're building this thing from the ground up. You're building this thing. You're creating it. But they had no like clear vision of the kind of product they wanted to offer there was never like this is our identity other than like we want to be an alternative to WWE so what does that mean and if you look at these shows if you watch these shows it's like they're not an alternative to WWE they're a worse version of what WWE did like years before and it it really frustrates me to to, like listen they did like eight hours of shows Jeff Jarrett and Conrad Thompson (laughs) and at no stage were they like so you know what did you want TNA to be like Surely that's one of the most important things you talk about when you found a company, right? I guess the idea there is that perhaps there was too many people with too varying uh, opinions on what the company was supposed to be. Which I think goes to an idea that we're uh, uh, an issue that we're going to talk about. I think a lot throughout this podcast. That actually, if you listen to that Jared podcast, it's very clear that him and Jerry were constantly on different pages throughout like the the early development of TNA because Jerry would mention that they were doing one thing and like this Jerry Jarrett book is it was his, his journal at the time he was writing a journal while he was founding TNA and then he published it as a book so it's like as primary a source as you get it's the man's journal thoughts the day they happened and he, he, Jared's like, oh, some of that never happened. And it's like, it clearly did. He, it's just your dad was doing things that you didn't either didn't know about or that he just didn't tell you about, which isn't exactly an ideal way to start the company. But also, we'll talk about this again in 2014 TNA, but Vince Russo was kind of secretly working for the company. It's amazing that two separate periods in TNA history, there's like Vince Russo shadow booking the company. If you have to make someone a shadow booker... <laughs> 
they're probably not worth bringing in. It's amazing. It's like, uh, we want you, but no one will like the fact that we have you. So we're not going to tell people. Like, there's this fascinating exchange in a a, a Wade Keller torch talk with Jerry Jarrett, where he's talking about like, and fair play to Wade Keller, who puts him on the spot. He's like, does Vince Russo work for you or collect a paycheck? And Jerry Jarrett's like, no. But then <laughs> Wade Keller follows up with like, but does he have any creative input to the product? And Jerry's like, well, you know, yes, but no, but yes. And it, really, it just comes back to the fact that obviously Vince Russo is a close friend of Jeff Jarrett. Uh, Jeff Jarrett's biggest push of his career came from Vince Russo and WCW. So Jeff obviously felt like either he owed Vince Russo something or that Vince Russo was the best guy to present him on television. And he just couldn't cut him loose. Because like Vince Russo was hired by WWE like days after TNA started. Days after the June 90s pay-per-view. That's when he went back to WWE for like a day before he was fired nearly immediately. But... <laughs> They they still couldn't let him go. He's like he still has to be this foundational part of the company. He even got a way out. <laughs> yeah, it's like God damn it. They still brought him back into the fold. He could have just been like, oh yeah, Vince, happy for you to go off the W. Because like if you read Jerry Jarrett's book, we'll get into the quotes because uh, they're they're later in June two thousand two. We'll get into the quotes later specifically about Vince Russo, but he detested Vince Russo. You know what, Jerry? Me too, man. He buries Vince Russo six feet under multiple times. He's like, this guy doesn't know wrestling. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's stupid. So it's clear that like that friction and that tension existed from the very beginning. That like Jerry Jarrett had this idea of what this company should be, which is like very traditional wrestling. Jerry, Jerry Jarrett made all his money in Memphis. So that kind of wrestling, that kind of like easy to understand stories, main event guys and main events, opening guys and opening contests. And there, there'll be some stuff that... Uh, maybe hasn't aged particularly well that we will talk about <laughs> when we get to reviewing these shows that there's some stuff in the show these shows that are just absolutely vile honestly which you can also hear our reaction to oh indeed like go and listen to our uh, on the ten dollar tier on patreon just to hear our visceral reactions to some of the homophobia and racism because we did a live watch along of, of nwtna paper and one. ableism it, it's all there it's it's literally everything that you could hope question mark for what do you want it's it's literally all in the show it's clear that like jerry jarrett wanted to be more traditional wrestling product that that obviously it ended up being nothing like that and that ended up actually being one of the key stories throughout the first year of the company traditional wrestling versus sports entertainment extreme we'll get to that in once to come <laughs> it, it, it bled onto the show as a storytelling device even the commentary team was apparently kind of designed like that where ed ferrara was going to be the sports entertainment guy and mike today was meant to be the the, the serious sports guy and they were meant to like argue and clash well you know what despite i i don't like ed ferrara mm-hmm. i do think he succeeds in that role yeah he is annoying about pushing sports entertainment on him but like i get it like even from a character perspective like i think i think it's fine like if he's the guy who's like in uh, going oh yeah i like the angles and the blah 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 and that's why i'm here and i'm gonna put that over and i'm gonna put the heels over but it also like intrinsically tells the audience that the sports entertainment stuff is garbage yeah. because the guy who was voicing that he likes it is the garbage guy on the commentary. <laughs> it, they are at least nice enough to tell you that. And that's like even a common theme between these first few shows is that they there's a lot of self-loathing on these shows mm. where they seemingly hate their own booking already. Yep. They they hate the angles they're putting on there. They hate the show, and they hate the and, that, and this might come from what we're talking about with the everyone has a different view of it. It's like everyone's 
there's just they're burying their own show from the beginning, and I think that that was the most interesting takeaway as I was watching too. I was like, why do they hate everything they're putting out there? I, I do wonder, is that like, you know, obviously somebody booked the Gauntlet for the Gold for the world title, and then a bunch of people come out at the start of these shows. Like, Jeff Jarrett, it's fine. You know, he's the heel. Him coming out and saying, oh, I have to win a 20-man gauntlet match to become champion? That's terrible. And then he's, he's, get, he's given his comeuppance by being made number one in the gauntlet. That's like, that that works. You know, that makes sense. That's a heel being a heel and getting his comeuppance. But then, like, Ken Shamrock comes out and it's like, yes, Jeff, I agree with you that this is a terrible idea, but I guess we have to do it. Before then, also, Scott Hall comes out, both of whom are babyfaces, by the way, Scott Hall and Ken Shamrock. Scott Hall also comes out and it's like, yeah, man, Man, it's such a dumb idea that we're doing this battle royal for the title. Oh, it's so terrible. So I do wonder if it's like deliberate sabotage that like somebody else is like, oh, I'm going to script these problems to bury this booking decision that I don't like. But it's not even specifically that either. Like there's other things on this show that like the commentary is just shitting on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. I like, I wonder if there was certain people in other people's ears like, Hey, Ed, I need you to really shit talk this segment for me. <laughs> hey, Mike, can you really bury the sports entertainment stuff for me? It is kind of fascinating to see that play out on air. Like, in a way that's mm. really tangible and clear to see. And, like, it may be just, like, they're setting up this story. That, that you know, they're building toward the sports entertainment extreme stuff. Or it still doesn't make for particularly compelling television that... Pretty much every segment has somebody telling you that part of it sucks for some reason. Yeah, it's like you can do that and have subtle story tells, but it's like you don't need to bury the show while you're doing it. It's like, especially, you know, it wouldn't even be that bad if it wasn't on TV, but it's you're asking people to pay a price point every week while telling them the show is bad. Uh, it's it's such a TNA thing to do from the very start, isn't it? Like, I, I, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling, like, how... It's almost the worst start to a sh- to a promotion you could fucking do. <laughs> the entire show spends the entire show telling you that the show sucks and you're a dumbass for spending ten bucks on it and you should never do it again. And then ends it with, and we'll see you next week. Make sure you slap them that ten bucks <laughs> to go watch Scott Hall and Jeff Jarrett. So we can bury you again for showing up and watching all this garbage. Yeah, it, it's there's immediately like a test for the like for their own viewership. It's. <laughs> It's very odd. It's remarkable that 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 like disdain for their own audience was there from the very beginning. Something that a uh, debris has picked up and carried along the finish liner. Uh, that's what people don't understand when like I criticize debris. It's like I am very familiar with all of these signs from the downfall of TNA, and they're repeating them like verbatim. And people are like, "Oh, it's going to be fine." It's like and WWE are much 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 more insulated from that because they make way more money than tna ever did but the problems are still there and those problems are very hard to fix the longer you ignore them i'm curious like if you had to do like a uh, a direct comparison point like could you what what era of tna is the closest to 2021 WWE from that perspective oh uh, it's probably like 2014 where like everybody every week would come out and say how much of the show sucked so you mean the era when everyone stopped watching yeah because like every week there'd be a promo where somebody would like dixie carter you're running this company into the ground Uh, this company has so much potential but you're ruining it and mvp would cut that promo and then turn heel and then somebody else would cut that promo on mvp and it would happen over and over again that's like everyone knows the show sucks nobody is over nobody's going anywhere there's no momentum occasionally you get some good matches but that's about it and it reminds me so much of 2014 tna when the year they got 
dumb top spike. Which they actually did turn it around the second half of the year. They had some good stuff in the second half of the year. But the first half of that year is just dire. Hmm. So we talked about the roster. Obviously, they wanted some of the big stars that were available at the time, but couldn't get them. They tried to get Luger. They couldn't get Luger. They approached Bret Hart. There's mention in the Wrestling Observer of a Team Canada that features Harry Smith, TJ Wilson, and Teddy Hart, which I think TJ Wilson would have been like 17 at that stage, I think. I, I think it's interesting that they clearly had that Team Canada idea from like the beginning. Yeah. Clearly, they, they, they loved that idea in WCW, the Team Canada that had Elix Skipper in it and Jim Duggan, all the famous Canadians. They wanted to bring it back. Uh, they also wanted Randy Savage, but couldn't get him. Sting, not couldn't get him either. Steiner was an interesting one in that like Steiner and Jeff Jarrett are best friends. They're huge pals, but they couldn't get him either. Steiner eventually went back to the WWF, to, to, or WWE at the time, of course, to beat up Chris Swinsky. Well, he also had like the, the Triple H stuff at that point, right? Was that earlier? No, th- this was 2002. Steiner was still a free agent. He, d- he didn't go back until Survivor Series that year. Yeah, so he did the, the World Heavyweight title stuff as well. Yeah, but TNA would have been long founded by then. But this, ah. Jeff Jarrett's best pal, he couldn't get him. So like, when you look at the market, when you look at the names they ended up getting... There's like Ken Shamrock, who's an interesting wrestler, an interesting star, but hasn't been around on a national stage for two to three years at that stage. So he's not like a big relevant name. Obviously, he's a huge name in the UFC at that stage. He has those those fights with Tito Ortiz that year that effectively saves the UFC as like not only that saves MMA, probably the history of MMA is very different without the Ken Shamrock with Tito Ortiz fights, because if the UFC doesn't make it, it's probably not a mainstream thing these days. So Ken Shamrock was a huge star in the fight world at that stage, but not so much in the, in the wrestling world. At least he was still on like the tip of people's tongues. Like he was still a name for something. Yeah. He wasn't a nobody, but like I suppose it would be equivalent. To, he's not a CM Punk level star, but Punk hasn't been around wrestling for a long time either. And if he came back, it would be a big deal. So maybe I'm being harsh on Ken Shamrock, but he's the biggest star they have. They couldn't get Sting. They couldn't get Savage. They couldn't get Luger. A lot of these people they did get up, end up getting eventually for one way or another, for one period or another. Some longer than others. Obviously, Steiner and Sting had long runs, whereas Luger and Savage did not. But when you take all those people off the table, there's not that much in the way of star power out there anymore. You have Jeff Jarrett, you have Scott Hall, you have Ken Shamrock as people who like people know. And then there's the likes of Rick Steiner and Buff Bagwell, who I think people know, but people don't care about. Uh, the Vampire Warrior. Ah, yes, Vampire Warrior, who wasn't like heavily promoted. He was just announced a few days beforehand as being in the Gauntlet for the Gold and then never showed up again. Clearly, nobody, nobody's a Gangrel fan. He shot out early, so obviously they can't keep a guy around to... Can't even obey the rules of the gauntlet of the gold. Shane Douglas, very funny. They, they were like, Shane, we want you to do the show. And Shane Douglas, Francine was already booked at the time. Shane Douglas was like, it's it's me or it's Francine. And then they're like, oh, we've already booked Francine, so it's Francine. It's like... <laughs> the fra- and apparently the franchise was bragging about that afterwards. It's like, oh, they got Francine, they don't got me. It's like, you just you just worked yourself out of money there, pal. It's, you're like, not a- in a company that's desperate for stars. <laughs> They're literally looking for anybody and you can talk. So, like, you would have been pretty good. I'd imagine they would have taken you. But nope, the franchise at the franchise. You know, he made his way in eventually. He did. They all made their way in eventually, except the, the only one that didn't that was talked about beforehand was Bret Hart, who didn't make his way in eventually. But pretty much everybody else did. And... You know, it's a roster. It's such a weird group of people, but it's it's a group of people. And to be fair, like, there's some stuff in there, you know? 
even at the early stages. You got you got you got the makings of some stuff, but it's definitely a weird assortment of characters. And like the the the, the first person they signed, they, they signed two major wrestlers to long term contracts, and by long term contracts we mean twenty six day contracts, which which at the time was intended <laughs> to be a one year contract because at launch they intended to do their first show live and then tape a show after that. So that's one date for somebody. So that takes everybody they have signed through a year. And the two people they signed were Ken Shamrock, who was meant to be their like big ace name. To be fair, that's a good signing. As good as they could probably get. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, even better, the phenomenal AJ Styles. See, that's some good foresight, right? To be fair, yeah, there's people who will always say to you that TNA didn't know what they had with AJ Styles. And it's like, he was one of the very, very, very few people they signed to a one-year contract to start. Like, basically everybody else was signed to either, like, a one-show contract, or in the case of Hall, I think it was something like four shows. So, like, the vast majority of people you saw on the very first NWATNA show were not signed to long-term deals. That's the way they set this thing up. Like, they, they very much expressly did not want a lot of overheads. So all of their, like, production, all of their uh, PR, all of that stuff was outsourced, and a vast majority of the talent were signed to short-term deals which uh, was a big reason people didn't have any faith in it because one they were like oh you're you're obviously not confident enough to tie people down but uh the second one thing was also like if any of these people catch on w is just going to sign them because you have none of them under contract Mm. which w didn't do because w were in a weird place during that era where they didn't sign people like ages it wasn't 2020 (laughs) yeah where where it's just like we're going to, to hire robbie e just so nobody else can have him it is a salient point that if you don't have people tied down that pe- that WWE can just be like oh yeah we'll take him great thanks for making him a star but, but yeah people argue that they didn't know what they had with AJ Styles and it's just absolute nonsense given he was one of the very very few people they actually signed to a deal well also like I think a lot of people may base that because on that like especially on that first show they see AJ first match and losing and they're probably like but it's like even from the first two shows you can tell that AJ was clearly a guy that they were really high on yep. like he was in that first match and he was highlighted in that first match well, by being pinned but sure uh, yeah but you know what i mean like uh, there was story at least they had tried to establish a story with him they gave him times to shine throughout the match they gave him an out with getting hit before he got pinned and then immediately on the next show they had him in the main event with the x title and showing off basically the, like that entire match was basically just a, a whole exercise in how to show off aj styles to an audience Mm-hmm. Not a great story for it all, but they clearly liked AJ a lot immediately. He was clearly intended to be one of the very few people to come out of these first couple shows as like a guy you should actually care about. Mm. No, they didn't. They didn't know what they had with AJ. Oh, it's he's already biting it back against the the IWC. <laughs> this is gonna be the big uh, feud of this. Uh, series it's gonna be you taking on all the, everyone online with their tweets on the twitter machine it's basically uh, this podcast is basically entirely my opportunity to correct the record on people being wrong about tna and then me to like be the realist who goes yeah this is a lot of bad <laughs> how dare you as we'll get when we get into the actual like more stuff about the shows <laughs> Yeah, if you look at my our star ratings list, uh, it's on the $1 per year tier on Patreon. Basically, all yours are just slightly lower than mine. It's like, hey, hey. I think, I, I do, I am curious, like, going off topic from the, the formation for a second, on, you know, especially Asylum stuff, like, Asylum to, as we said, like, what, 09, <laughs> I, I have very little knowledge base on. So it's coming in from... Me going in there, basically watching stuff either for the first time or just the second time, really. And you, like, 
the foremost TNA guy on the internet. <laughs> so like, it's going to be like, you know, I think in general, when it comes to wrestling, you're a little less forgiving than I am, right? Mm-hmm. But are we going to reach a point where it's like, oh, Garrett clearly has like some nostalgia goggles here. And I'm going to come in here and go, actually. <laughs> you are the objective star writer. Yeah. I'm, I am curious to see like how much that plays into it. But like this wasn't, like you weren't watching like this era of TNA at the time. No. It is the era of TNA that I would have the least nostalgia for. Mm. So I expect that to be more around the 05, 06 era and beyond. So they wanted a bunch of NWA legends for the, the opening ceremony to get the belt prestige. And boy, did they get them. Well, the, to be fair, they did get a bunch of them. They're, they're like Ricky Steamboat, Harley Race, Dory Funk Jr. Those are those are good level like NWA stars. People who are have strong association with that championship mm-hmm. and with that legacy to, to kind of show up and tell you how important it is. Mm-hmm. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, ah, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network what's going on guys this is rich from the flagship podcast here on the voice of wrestling podcast 
Network. If I could have a moment of your time, I'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors, Eufy Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock is a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell, all three-in-one, offering you triple security. So you can have everything in one device rather than installing many pieces on your front door. But it's not just for security. The Eufy Video Lock is also for convenience. No more concerns about losing keys, and you can assign passwords to your family members and see them coming back home via the integrated cameras. Some other great features we love about the Eufy Video Lock is it is easy to install and set up with just a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. Keyless entry, no more fumbling for keys when your hands are full. You never have to worry about kids losing keys or passing among renters. You also have 0.3 second, 0.3 second fingerprint recognition and one second unlocking. Again, 0.3 seconds, it's going to recognize your fingerprints and in one second it's going to unlock and with the AI self-learning chip embedded, the more you use it, the more accurate it will be. Also, no battery anxiety. You have a rechargeable battery in there that could last around four months and you will get a low battery notification before it runs out. Uh, Passcode unlocking a remote control with the 2K clear sight. See who's at your door and control from anywhere through the Eufy app. With enhanced night vision, you can have optimized view even in the evening. You can also secure your package delivery by view and two-way audio. And then best of all, no monthly fee. A bunch of other brands out there are going to charge you a monthly fee. You have your recordings locally and you never have to pay for storage. Customer service, Eufy's got you handled as well. They're on standby for you 24-7 so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty, all backed by their professional customer service team. Contact them anytime by telephone, email, or live chat. Personally, as a homeowner, I love my Eufy video lock. I have the ability to see what's going on when I'm not home, when packages have has arrived, and, and really the thing I love the most about it, the ease of being able to lock and unlock my doors without having to fumble with my keys and reach in my pocket or wait, no, crap, they're in my backpack, all that sort of stuff. All this is happening while my dogs are barking at me. You know what? Not anymore with the Eufy video lock. I touch it. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition, one second doors unlocked much much easier so if you want to jump on board with eufy video lock search eufy video lock that is e u f y video lock again that's eufy video lock e u f y video lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door They also had Jackie Fargo, Corsica Joe, Sarah Lee, but sure. They had Jackie Fargo be there for like five hours of the first two shows. I like the way it's like, the you know, Harley Race and Dory Funk are much bigger stars than Jackie Fargo. But Jackie Fargo is a bigger local star, perhaps. But but like Jackie Fargo plays a huge role in that show, whereas like... That's because Jarrett likes him. Jeff Jarrett family ripped off the strut from Jackie Fargo. To be fair, Steamboat also plays a big role. Steamboat plays a big role on both shows too. They also wanted Dusty Rhodes, but Dusty was like, uh, no, I want a lot of money. And also Dusty apparently was like, actually, you know, you're taping two shows at once, so this is two bookings, not one. So I want double the money. Fair play to Dusty. Always a worker. Dan Severin becomes a big point of contention on the Jeff Jarrett podcast, where it's like, Dan Severin was NWA champion heading into these shows. And and the the, the long-held story, the story that's backed up in Jerry Jarrett's book, is that Dan Severin was double booked on the launch date on June 19th was not available so stripped of the title uh, and they went into the gauntlet match 
And the, the way Jeff Jarrett goes on about it, he did not want Dan Severn on his show. I've never heard a man have more hatred for Dan Severn in my life. What, what happened between Dan Severn and Jeff Jarrett? I don't know. Conrad kind of pokes at him. It's like, what happened here? Why do you... Because, like, it's not like, you know, we have no interest in, in Dan Severn. It's like, he's like, Dan Severn was not going to be on my show. It's like, whoa, dude. You think Dan Severn beat him up? He shot on him, yeah. And like there's such an easy story there because Dan Severn and Ken yeah. Shamrock were UFC rivals. So sure, like a, a really cool match to book would be Dan Severn against Ken Shamrock. Two pioneers of the sport in the US. And like maybe it wouldn't be the most charismatic dynamic match in the world in terms of like promos and stuff. But it's a, such an easy story that might actually generate some interest. A Dan Severn versus Ken Shamrock pay-per-view main doesn't sound like a, a terrible idea for a company trying to get any and all buzz especially on this like your freaking paper your main event ended up being malice against ken shamrock like hey and i like malice but nobody cared about the wall you know no one was like oh the walls on that's the show? why it wasn't it wasn't a uh, pitched as malice versus ken shamrock for the nwa title was it do you have any problem with the the battle royal for the world title i don't i think it's a perfectly fine way to crown it like i i would prefer a tournament like i always prefer a tournament yeah. But if you have to do like a one day kind of, we got to get it in there and out there. I also, I think I have a less problem with it uh, because it ends in a singles match anyway. Yeah, the TNA gauntlet format, which is Royal Rumble, but the last two ends in pinfall and submission. Which I think might be the best way to do it. Yeah, W should have changed it years ago, but they're too stuck in their ways. Come on, Casino Battle Royal, just ditch it. Gauntlet for the gold, baby. Like realistically looking at the, the roster they had, if you were to do a one night tournament instead of a Battle Royal, the tournament matches would have sucked, you know? <laughs> You're doing uh, Vampire Warrior against Ken Shamrock. Malice. Buff Bagwell against Malice. <laughs> Rick Steiner yes. against Apollo, you know? <laughs> I'm trying to put together tournament matches here. Excuse me, it would be Rick Steiner versus Scott Hall. Jeff Jarrett versus Apollo. There you go. But like, would you like to see that one night tournament? I wouldn't. So I, I'm more on board with the idea of just doing a gauntlet in that case. I don't know, man. Four mat- Malice matches is right up my alley. Stor- uh, James Storm and Chris Harris, actually, they, they were not signed originally. They, I don't even think they were on people's radar. But on, on June 1st, on an uh, independent show, they did a, a, on a Burt Prentice show, they did a, a match on that show where TNA were just in the building. They had like Don West and Ed Ferrara there. Jim Cornette also got in a fight with Ed Ferrara on that show for <laughs> mocking Jim Ross and WCW. Of course. You know, that rules, actually. Ed Ferrara's getting on my side. <laughs> Well, he mocked his Bell's palsy, so it's... it's... No, damn it, Ed. You couldn't take the high road. <laughs> couldn't just call him a bad announcer or something. But yeah, Chris Harris and James Storm had such a good match on that show, they actually earned their way onto the TNA show and then ended up being very important parts of TNA. So imagine if they just randomly didn't see that Chris Harris-James Storm match. I think TNA would be even more dire than it ended up being. Or if that match was shit. An interesting little factoid about that uh, Storm and Harris match, they uh, actually mentioned it on commentary on the second show. Yeah. So they were like, these two guys, they're good. And they ended up being good. Yeah. So that worked out. They were pretty good on that second show, actually. Yeah, they're one of the few redeeming factors about that undercard. <laughs> that second show is rough. <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, we had the foundation of the commentary team, which Don West was one of the, the first people brought on. He was His name was bandied about during the WCW days, but Don West was known as a like television shopping network guy. He was at the Shop on Home Network where he sold like uh, sports memorabilia. He was a pitch guy. He was a sales guy. He was once spoofed on SNL by Will Ferrell because... That's how, like, Don West is the most easily spoofable man in the world. But obviously he had never done wrestling before. And he, I love Don West in this era because he's just so, 
like objectively wholesome and he's so enthusiastic and he is he knows nothing about wrestling no he has no idea what's going on but like aj styles does a hurricane rana and he loses his mind yeah it's the coolest thing he's ever seen in his life and it's so much fun to watch i think he'll get better at it but there's very clearly some times in these first two shows where mike tonight has to be like all right, you're giving away the show a little bit here, man. We gotta, we gotta reel it back slightly. When you, when I forgot who it was, it was in one of the matches. I'm just gonna go through the results real quick to see if I can work it out. Was it when he was shouting, "It's got to be malice"? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, that was a great one. There was another one that I can't remember, but I, it was some match. I'll just say it was the Brian Christopher K Crush match, right? I don't know if it was, but at one point he just goes like K Crush is on the heat segment, beating him down, and he just goes, oh, "Brian Christopher, Brian Christopher's gonna come back and win." <laughs> <laughs> I love him working out how pro wrestling works in real time. It's like, oh, this is how this works. And Mike goes to him, "Well, that's just your opinion. We'll have to wait to see." Oh, I love Don. It's like, because there's, uh, there's far too much weird cynicism in wrestling commentary these days, where like people who clearly don't like what they're calling or start burying what they're calling. And Don West is just out here losing his mind at literally everything in the most like sincere way possible. Actually, I don't mind this trio of people at all. Mm. I don't like Ed Ferrara in anything other than the commentary, <laughs> but actual, like, him just talking shit, I think he's fine. Uh, Scott Hudson was originally considered for play-by-play, but apparently was not available, so they ended up going with Mike Tanay. And also, uh, a big thing, apparently, Don West was originally supposed to be host of the show, not a color commentator. You see a bit of that in the first show. Yeah, because he's actually the first person you see on the first show when he walks out and is like, welcome to the show, blah 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 So Don West's role changed from host to commentator, so they, I think they, they knew they needed somebody very professional very knowledgeable to make up for don west's lack of knowledge and like the, the whole idea was like it was mike Tanay bringing the expert perspective don west bringing the fan perspective and then ed ferrara kind of like the entertainment guy so like mike Tanay calls holes tells stories don west just shouts and gets excited and then ed ferrara makes yeah. some quips and jokes which is a nice kind of balance everybody has a role yeah, I think it 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 works. Uh, and like, like Mike Tenay is the best. Mike Tenay is so good on these shows, like just so good. And there's people who don't like Mike Tenay, and I will fight them because like he is he's knowledgeable and he's passionate and he's enthusiastic and like he just nails the big calls and he makes things feel important and he makes like. I think this show would feel a lot more haphazard and a lot less credible if it had an announcer that wasn't as like professional and honored as Mike Tenay was. Like he's the voice of TNA to me, you know. Mm. Like say what like no one else like even like even above Don West. Like I, when I like imagine a TNA match, that's the voice I'm hearing in my head. So while they were building it, they obviously took the NWA tag titles and the NWA World Title. The third title they had was originally pitched as a middleweight title. That's what it was talked about in the, the build up before the X Division was formally created. It's not about weight limits; it's about no limits, which was there from the very beginning. I like people are always like, I don't get it. I don't understand the X Division. It's like it's not about weight limits about no limits it's like no i don't get it's like then you're stupid (laughs) it's about it's about kick-ass matches like what do you want you want it's about the guys who go out there and do high spots and kill themselves it's about good wrestlers doing cool shit what's hard to understand here i I don't get how you could even be like confused by that like it's like like the intercontinental title makes less sense like explain that title to me well if you want to go for stuff at the like the time it's like wwe title world title like none of these titles make sense Universal title. Like, this is, like, what the, like it's a mid card belt, but they can't call it the mid card title. So. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the instinct that or sorry, the less significant belt. 
Yeah. That's what we're going to name our belt. The one that, like, the one that, like, for people who might be something in the future. <laughs> but it's very clear from the very beginning. And I think they kind of know it, and they increasingly lean into it. But, like, that's what TNA is. Like, the X Division is the thing that, like, actively stands out. Yeah, and it's probably also the most consistently good part of the company. Maybe some would say the only good part of the company. It's interesting to, to read quotes and booking philosophies because, as I mentioned, they kind of collide and contrast because, like, Jeremy Borash was on Wrestling as a Live and he was talking about how they needed water cooler moments, they needed the shock and awe, they needed fast-paced wrestling and outside features, which is very Ritz Russo. But, like, Jeff Jarrett was on Wrestling as a Live uh, later and he's like, we're not going to do a lot of the Attitude Era stuff. It's going to be more traditional, plain sailing wrestling. It's like, you uh, you people don't know what this company is going to be, do you? Yeah, that's really... The, that's the big problem here, isn't it? It's like, there was there was no unified focus no. and like jeff jarrett he says in the podcast uh, that he did it's just like oh it's important that there's one person in charge or there's one person calling the shots and that was me and it's like that's clearly not the case pal <laughs> when you look at the way this thing turned out yeah. it's actually vince mcmahon was on bite this and he actually, they actually asked him about tna in which he answered it's an unusual approach and a novel idea but i don't know how you promote when you have no promotional vehicle how do you sell tickets in huntsville if they're selling them fine but i don't know how they promote if they have no platform that's difficult to do. That is a, a relatively thought out and not demeaning <laughs> answer to that question at all. Because, like, one, he's dead right. And he ended up being dead right because they barely sold any tickets to the show. But when you think about how he responded to, like, AEW when they asked him on Investor Conference, he's like, oh, that's blood and guts. That's that's bringing down the industry. Well, he tried to bury one and one he was just like, I don't get it. But I, it was almost like, I don't get it, but sure, do you think? If it works, all power to him. But I don't think it will. I, I enjoy, like... The, the human like i wish he wasn't like this weird demon man mm-hmm. because i would actually like just to hear his business thought process like like i need a, a vince mcmahon ted talk <laughs> but it's like no shtick like i just i legitimately interested in his business ac- acumen like I, i've said it as a joke before but i honestly kind of mean it that the best content they could ever do is just slap a camera on him for tw- for like a week you know, just follow up. Yeah. And just, like, see what this man does and his weirdness and his, like, ketchup on steak and his refusal to sneeze and all, like, the weird vincisms that are charming and then all the weird vincisms that are not so charming. And just, just like... Well, we can't talk about those ones. Who, who's, who is this man? Because, like, he he has kind of ascended beyond just being a person, hasn't he? He's, like, this, this, this figure in the ether of professional wrestling who has been ever-present for the last 35 years as opposed to being just a human being. And Vince the human being is very weird and strange and I'd like to just watch him. <laughs> not in a stalker way, but... I also think that, like, I would love to hear this in, like... 0203 you know what I mean like 2021 Vince I, I don't think I do necessarily want to hear him sit down and talk about business <laughs> but like 02 I he's still rocking at all all cylinders to the most part like that's a real unexplored portion of wrestling uh because you know he's the biggest name <laughs> he got the most money he doesn't need to do any of that shit and like what reason does Vince McMahon have to tell us anything but it's just, I don't know, I think there's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff under there somewhere. Under the, the sneezing and the the steaks and the 
and uh, not watching anything, not watching movies or listening to music. There's, 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 some, there's some stuff there, I'm sure. Yeah, Vince ended up being right. They barely sold any tickets. They were in, a, a, I believe, a four or 5,000-seat stadium. They only sold 330 tickets with nine days to go, and by the end, they only had about 400, 500 paid in there. And they, they did end up uh, having about 3K in there, but they, that was obviously heavily paid for. The vast, vast, vast majority of them we got in there for free. And like they were a good crowd. They were a hot crowd. I was going to say, the, uh, the one thing I will give both these shows is, you know, the crowd was into them. Yeah, this crowd was at least interested. It was engaged, even if none of them paid to be there. And, like, I can't blame them. When you look at these lineups, what are you going to see? you going to see T.O. against Hollywood? you going to pay for that? I mean, I would. The Dupps against uh, Christian York and Joey Matthews. The Johnsons against James Storm and Psychosis. Like, none of these matches are matches that anybody should ever go pay to see. Yeah. And, like, the big idea at the time was, like, oh, we'll have a bunch of NASCAR guys there. We'll have Sterling Martin. We'll have um, Hermie Sadler. We'll also have Toby Keith. These are big uh, country music stars. These stars should appeal to people in Huntsville, Alabama. But nope. Yeah, but they want to see the NASCAR guys go broom mm-hmm. and they want to see a Toby Keith concert. But Toby Keith sang though, so Toby Keith good, did go sing. He sang a song. Like, if you want to do that, you can go see Toby Keith sing, I'm sure, for like, same amount of money at some other place and you'll do a full fucking set for mm-hmm. you. They don't, <laughs> like, just seeing someone isn't like a draw when they're not in their element. So that does finally bring us to, to the Von Braun Civic Center in Holtzville, Alabama, June 19th, 2002. The foundation of TNA Wrestling as they held their first show in front of about, as I said, 400, 500 paid, about 3,000 in the building in total. Uh, pay-per-view buys will become a reoccurring issue because the people who were providing the numbers uh, did not provide them accurate numbers and they thought the show was a success and it really, really wasn't. Uh, it did not do remotely near what they needed to. Like Jerry Jarrett mentions in the Torch Talk with um, with uh, Wade Keller that they need forty to 50,000 to break even, which when you think about it, that's about 50,000 is ha- half a million at 10 each. $10 each is half a million, of which they get about a split of half of from the pay-per-view provider, which is 250000 to break even. And they did not get remotely near that, but we'll talk about that in later episodes when that scandal is more uh, relevant. But uh, needless to say, these shows did not do particularly well. But well, let's talk about them, Liam. Let's talk about NWA TNA pay-per-view number one. What did you think of it? Let's do the good stuff first, mm-hmm. right? Flying Elvises versus Styles, Lee and Loki. It's a lot of fun. Whatever about the booking. Tio and Hollywood. A banger? Shockingly good. That match should not have been nearly as good as it ended up being. And it's like, it's three minutes long, but they like just drop a bunch of cool they spots there. And they like throw shoot punches. It's like, yeah, heck yeah. Yeah. The Johnsons versus Storm and Psychosis was like surprisingly good. Well, because the Johnsons, the, the, the Shane brothers, are actually like good wrestlers. They were NWA tag champs before yeah. the start of TNA. Before the, 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 they stripped them of the belts. And then they put them in the damn penis costumes and ruined their careers. It's almost like if you were like, if you stripped to this show of the cringe gimmicks mm-hmm. and just had them as like regular people in having these exact same matches, the show would be exponentially better. Because, like, this is legit because if you remember the Jim and I from um, WWE, managed by Simon Dean, that's who the Johnsons were. Like, two big, impressive-looking guys who did big, cool suplexes and power moves. If you didn't present them as penis men, they probably would have gotten over. The gold, for the gold fucking stunk. Yeah, we, we... But... We did talk about that extensively in the watch-along, about how, like, just no thought was put into that gauntlet. None whatsoever. Yeah, there was, there was not even a second of booking was about the gauntlet for the gold. I will give credit, however, to Malice, who is awesome. He's just a big guy who chokeslams everybody. You can't go wrong. Yeah, he's dope and especially uh i'll skip a little ahead in the second show 
I was like, oh, this guy rules. <laughs> this guy is fucking awesome. He reminds me of, like, Psycho Sid. Yeah. Except probably a little better as a worker. Yeah, and he comes in and he beats the shit out of people. Good stuff. The bad everything else. Yeah. The bad every single angle that was on this show. The bad <laughs> everything that had, like, a semblance of sports entertainment on this show was awful. The, the racism was awful. The sexism was awful. The homophobia was awful. Just... <laughs> There's like there's like all these like little bits of good in there, and then just the bottom of the barrel trash everywhere else. Yeah, because the show opens with a, a legend segment, which it, which it wasn't meant to be. It was meant to open with the flying Elvises against Styles and Loki match. But Cheeks, who appeared on the second show, beating beating Frank Walker, the actual match that broke the ring, aired on the second show. It broke the ring, so they had to send the Harris brothers out there to fix the ring desperately. There's actually some great audio of it on one of the TNA DVDs. I might throw it in here actually. Don West just like casually be like, hey Mike, ring's broken, we're rearranging the show, and Mike Tanay, like pure pro, he's like, yep, alright, that's all I pay for you, let's keep going. It's like, well, that didn't even phase you, good god, you were clearly a very, uh, to be fair, he lived through WCW, so he's probably well used to the chaos. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready, don't, I, that was, I was, that was like the fifth thing I was prepared for. But yeah, they did open with like, I thought the Legend segment was pretty good, it's like, this belt is meaningful, it's important, until Jeff Jarrett and, and Scott Hall and Ken Shamrock came out and buried the idea of the match, because that's, that's the worst part. It's like, oh, this actually makes sense. You know, you have these these venerable champions, Dory Funk Jr., Harley Race, uh, Ricky Steamboat, these people who are, are really like legitimate legends in the NWA, telling you how important this belt is and how we're going to crown a champion and how it's going to be meaningful. And like, great idea. Establishing the belt is a big thing from the very beginning. But then you have people come out and bury it. It's like, what are you doing? It also doesn't help that like, after all of this stuff, total non-stop action, first segment is an in-ring talking, everyone come out, music hit talk about the main event segment in their defense they didn't want i get i I know what you mean but perception wise yeah cursed cheeks it's all cheeks fault i will not have you besmirch cheeks in front of me you son of a bitch tna would have been fine people would have believed the total non-stop action name had cheeks not changed history and then we of course go into the the big six man yeah the six man tag which was a great match kicked ass yeah ron west and ed farrow were in the this show was in 2002, so it is it is a different, not to excuse it even remotely, but to put it in its its, its cultural context, it is a... It was a different era. Like, but I, I'm kind of even going to bury it's a different era, because it's not. You know, it's 2002, yeah. it's not the Attitude Era anymore. Like, they, they always give out about standards and practices in WCW. WCW didn't allow this stuff to happen. WCW didn't allow this stuff to happen for a reason, because that's the way society was moving. And it's right that, like, women are de- degraded and reduced to being dancing in cages at ringside that's a hot take garrett (laughs) like uh, and like you hear the wrestling people desperately cling to like oh we need to be edgy and gritty which basically means like racism and sexism and all the bad stuff and the homophobia on these shows says that anymore though like who's out there fighting for like that who wants the attitude era you still get the russo disciples they're they're less these days but they're still there i had two of them in my mentions the other day yeah but garrett who gives a shit about anyone who listens to Vince Russo? <sighs> Those two people do, apparently. 
Well, like, like I'm sorry, I, I can't even fathom, like, <laughs> giving them a, a second of your day, though. It's like, you know who they go to for their, their news source. Like, like Russo's below Cornette. <laughs> There's a moment, again, on that Jeff Jarrett podcast, not to rag on Jeff Jarrett, but, like, where they mention the women dancing in cages. And Connor's like, why'd you do that? And Jeff Jarrett comes up with this most bizarre excuse that it's like we were on pay-per-view and we needed transitions between segments so we we decided to put women in cages so we could cut to like 10 seconds of women dancing in cages to transition between segments as if like pay-per-view was only invented by tna then and they're like we're fixing this problem that wcw who have been doing pay-per-views for 15 years uh, didn't have and wwf who have been doing pay-per-views for 15 years didn't have none of those people need dance. and for, like conrad called them out on it it was such a lame excuse like own up to the fact that this was it's just it, even by 2002 it was like this is just isn't acceptable anymore why are you doing this there's a couple things wrong with that jeff one there was women in cages in the crowd (laughs) who weren't shot one of them like way off to the left off camera and two the company's name is tna (laughs) so clearly they weren't just there as a transition yep quotation marks actually it's in the the name of the company was meant to be uh tuesday night attitude but then the pay-per-view company was like actually you're airing on wednesdays Thus, proving my point more. It tells you how absolutely committed they were to the TNA name and the TNA double entendre that when they were moved to Wednesdays, they were like, we're just going to come up with a different meaning for the acronym. You know what? A young Liam, when he first started watching TNA, didn't even get that. Mm. Because, like, the whole TNA thing was, like, such an early 2000s bit. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I just thought it was a cool acronym for a wrestling company, really. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's cool. It doesn't have, like, there's no W in it anyway. Yeah, the point Jeremy Borash always raises, like, uh, on the History of TNA, we were one DVD he mentions that he was standing in the middle of the ring on that first show as he was ready to do the countdown. And, like, just organically, the crowd just started going, like, TNA, TNA, TNA. At that point, he realized that, you know, actually, this is a pretty good name. It's a very chantable show name, a very chantable company name. Yeah, see, I really like the TNA name. It's just, I wish it didn't have that, you know, Look at us, we're so edgy, tits and ass. Like, I wish it didn't have that whole surrounding it, but it's like, the actual name's pretty great. <laughs> but to go back to the, the Wade Keller Torch talk, where Jerry Dart was interviewed, he expressly said, We think that to mark your naked girl out de-emphasizes TNA instead of enhancing it. Our product will reflect that. To which Wade Keller follows up. But you feel, you do feel that having women out there is eye candy, no matter how revealing or provocatively dressed they are, is important. To which Jerry Jarrett responds, yes, it's important to the 18 to 35 male demographic that we are going after. Which honestly makes it worse that it's just this cynical, desperate play for horny teenagers' attention. Well, it's like what we said in the, in the live reaction. It was like, ah, this is why we come for wrestling. To beat off. It, was, it wasn't easy to watch at the time. It wasn't good at the time. But watching in 2021, particularly on the second show with the Lingerie Battle Royal, it's just, it's unbearable to watch these It's w- one of the worst pro wrestling matches I think I've ever seen. I feel bad for like legitimate wrestlers like Mickey James out there. Like Mickey James. That's the problem too. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> You know what? Wasn't even the worst part of this show. We had the penis costume, like James Storm making his debut as like Cowboy Man, you know, uh, who would go on to become the man who had more matches in TNA history than anybody else. The only wrestler to have more than a thousand matches in TNA history, James Storm. It debuts losing to the men in the penis costumes. 
In the same way that AJ Styles debuted losing to the men in the Elvis costume. I was going to say, like, if they weren't wearing the penis costumes, it'd be forgivable too. Like, If they yeah. were just dudes. Yeah, if they were just these two big, beefy dudes, as I said, who did suplexes, look cool, or throwing people around, it would be like, oh yeah, those guys. That's cool. You should push those guys. Could have even, uh, you should have just had them come in as the NWA Tag Champions. Why wouldn't you use that to your advantage? They clearly just wanted to stamp their own identity on all these things. Yeah, their own identity sucks. That's very, very true. But it's not even that sucks. It just doesn't really exist. It's like a weird hodgepodge of attitude-era tropes that don't add up. Mm. Uh, One of the worst segments (laughs) already in the history of TNA. So Sterling Martin and Hermes Adler come out there cutting some NASCAR promo. And the crowd are super into them. They're like, oh, NASCAR stars. We're into these guys. Before Ron (laughs) Killings comes out. And they do this weird promo where Sterling Martin and Hermes Adler are like, your kind aren't real athletes. We're athletes. It's like, what What do you mean by your kind? And they expressly call that like basketball and football. And it's it's not even failed racism. It's like, it's just that dog whistling that exists out in the open. It especially is like, and they start going to the like, look how you're dressed. <laughs> look how we're dressed. It's just like, ugh. And like the worst part of it, the, the thing that makes it like the, the puts the cherry on top, where it's like your kind are terrible, our kind are great, but then the defender of our kind is Brian Christopher, who looks like an asshole. <laughs> He's the dumbest looking human being on earth, with his goggles and his sunglasses and his freaking cow print pants. It's like for any other company, that would be the heat. Yeah, that the guys who are like we're cool have a big dumb idiot representing them. <laughs> But no, they're the baby faces. Jared said afterward that it wasn't written to be a black-white thing. Like, it wasn't intended to be a race thing. But it just, come on. Come on. Was it Jerry Jarrett or Jeff Jarrett? That was Jerry. There's too many Jarretts. There is. You always have to specify. Because, like, he, he he spoke a ton to Wade Keller. I'm shocked at how much he did speak to Wade Keller. Wade Keller had tons of, like, exclusive scoops and quotes from Jeff Jarrett at the time. <laughs> and all of those PW Torch uh, newsletters. So go, go back. We'll actually read some of them because there's some fun gossip after the show. <laughs> but in an era when wrestling had gossip, which it doesn't really anymore. Because we know everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. Like, that segment is just dreadfully racist. It's just not even veiled racism. It's just right there in the front racism. Yeah, it's like... It's it's just out there in front. Just look at it. It's racism, and the crowd was going nuts. <laughs> Which is and like there, there's a fun segment on a wrestling observer radio recently where Lance Storm was talking about Smoky Mountain wrestling uh, after New Jack had passed away, and about how New Jack would basically weaponize the racism of those crowds in Smoky Mountain to help himself and Tracy's mother sell Confederate flags in which they would split the profits. Which was <laughs> really quite fun, but like. We're long past the point of, like, pandering to racism. Even in 2002, that's not a thing you should have been doing. And it's a thing they were doing in a way that's very ham-fisted and very, very, very problematic. Uh, the Duffs beat the... The Duffs... I like the Duffs. They're char- except, no, the Duffs are bad in the second show. <laughs> you were talking yourself into a fucking corner then. <laughs> the Duffs were charming for a show until they became horrible homophobes. <laughs> <laughs> which is typical like the Duffs it's like oh they're this country bumpkin act which is a cliche but you know what go for it but then in the second show it's like we ain't wrestling nobody with these alternative lifestyles <laughs> it's like no just fully in fear <laughs> the, the the gay men will corrupt them and they're not going to wrestle the gay men no uh, why like why who is that for 
Homophobes? Well, it's, it's probably for the same people who were cheering the previous segment. Uh, the match was pretty good against York and Matthew. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, this first show, like, the matches weren't awful. No. Except for the main event. Yeah, and then you had the main event. Ken Shamrock defeated Malice and gone for the gold. Gone for the gold, which had a ton of people show up in it. Uh, Brian Christopher, Bruce, Buff Bagwell, Chris Harris, Del Rios, everybody's favorite Scott Steiner impersonator. Mm-hmm. which uh, we were both furious that they did not do anything particularly notable between Del Rios and Rick Steiner. Yes. Like, that was a, a gigantic missed opportunity. But to be fair, they did nothing above anyone in this match at all. That's so, <laughs> Devin Storm, Apollo. Zero thought. Justice, of course, who would go on to become the Monster Abyss. Yes. Kate Crush, Conan, Lash LaRue, Norman Smiley, Scott Hall Slash, Rick Steiner, uh, Steve Carino and Vampire Warrior were all your entrants in this gauntlet for the gold. Carino was a was a real big uh, surprise for me. And he did nothing. <laughs> he was just thrown out. He did nothing. He, he did zero. He did below nothing. Like, Carino must just like come from that era where it's like everyone slightly before him must just hate him. Mm. And then everyone after him, like, kind of, like, weirdly idolized him. Well, the big reason he never got, like, much run in TNA was because he was too busy doing uh, Japanese stuff and he wasn't available often enough. But even so, do you, like, do you think Karina would have been the top guy in TNA in the early 2002s? No. (laughs) Yeah. But you never know. Weird people showed up as top guys in TNA. Ron Killings ended up being one of the biggest stars of the first few years of the company, and no one would have predicted that beforehand. I think that was... More so, a lack of other options. Yeah, which, like, racism aside, <laughs> Ron Killings was good in that segment, at least. He was, like, a man who... Yeah, he also looked good on this show. It's in the main event and on the, the next uh, show as well. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the first show. It's, like, if you look at up and down this card, it's basically the entire show is meme wrestlers and bits beating real wrestlers. And... Honestly, I, I think this show is, like... A show you should watch, though. Uh, it's historically important. It's on Impact Plus, of course. It's also free on YouTube. If you just search the first TNA show, you'll find it. It's all the entire show is up there. If you'd like to experience it, especially today as we uh, put this up, it'll be the, the the 19th anniversary of this show. But also wait and buy our Patreon and then listen to watch it with our reactions. Yes, well, you can listen to our audio track of us burying all the things that happened on the show. <laughs> yeah, we did a countdown, right? You can sync it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the first show. It's a show without an identity. It's a show that's clearly like just bizarrely thrown together without any clear like indication of what it's really meant to achieve. Like what are what's pushing the Dups meant to do? What's pushing the Johnsons meant to do? Other than it's it's people in the writers' room find that nonsense funny, and it's just it's sad and desperately pandering to an audience that they didn't even get in the door. That's the thing. It's like, you know, with the, the, the freaking lingerie battle Royal and the racists and the homophobic stuff, not that you'd understand it, but like, if you were pandering to an audience, you'd be like, Oh, well they're doing something there. They didn't even do that. They're like, they're, they're, they're debasing themselves and being like just bottom of the barrel entertainment for the sake of absolutely no return whatsoever. And that's really a sad sight to see. I don't know. It's definitely a weird, dated show, but a show that like you could put on with your friends and go, "Haha, look at this show." You can like. You... I had a good time watching it with my friend Garrett, <laughs> but I don't know if I would. I don't know if like at the time watching it, I would have gone, "Well, I'm excited for NWA TNA pay per view number two. It's it's weird because a lot of the ratings in the time were like fives out of tens and six out of tens, which I would have said are way too high, and people being far too optimistic based on like this two hours of entertainment, but like it's 2002 who am i to know what the wrestling mind space was like then Mm. which brings us to the second show which like was the first show with all the bad stuff and much less of the good stuff (laughs) 
this show, like, aesthetically, as I was watching, just, I was like, this is WCW. Yeah. This is what it reminded me of. I was like, I felt like I was watching uh, 2000s WCW right there. And, like, it's very clear that was the intent. You know, they were they were trying to be the replacement for WCW in the market. They were running old WCW markets. They were they even had a WCW ring, like the literal ring was a WCW ring. So like a lot of the the, the small things in that era were, were were directly catered to the people who had stopped watching wrestling after WCW had died. Which it's actually fascinating to think that that's the thing we're kind of still doing. We're still like pandering to the old WCW fan twenty years later. But even then, a year later, they were still like you know this is designed for the people who liked WCW. But like WCW is a very broad spectrum of things. The the old era of like the Flair and Steamboat and WCW, which is like those these big iconic main events and these big matches. Then there's like the the weird era between that. There's the Hulk Hogan era. There's the Nitro era. There's the NWO era. Then there's the kind of Death era, which honestly TNA more than anything is based on the Death era. But that's what that's what I meant. Like that specifically was the era of WCW that this reminded me of. Where everything is terrible except some occasionally good cruiserweight matches, which is basically the TNA yeah. TNA identity. Um, but yeah, they did, I don't even think they did a good job of like finding that WCW audience. Obviously not. Otherwise, they would have had an audience. Yeah, because like when you read like their expectations, like they wanted this show to like tour every two weeks in different markets. Huntsville was the first one they did. Like four hundred people paid. And I think that Nashville was the second they were doing to the municipal, municipal auditorium where they they then started considering Nashville as a home base, which eventually they would do. But like they considered this a touring brand before it utterly flopped as a touring brand. And like, what were they thinking people would come out for? I just don't understand because they didn't even announce like Scott Hall and Jeff Jarrett would be a match that would probably get people in the building. But because it was set up in the first show for the second show, they couldn't announce it, so people wouldn't show up. Hey, you know where that when what they could have announced that for? The first show, if they did Dan Severin versus Ken Shamrock in the main event. Yeah, you could have had Scott Hall and Jarrett. You could have had some good singles matches, some meaty stuff to sink your teeth into. Mm. Uh, but no. I guess they were right when they were burying the gauntlet for the cold the whole <laughs> way through the first show. It really ruined the first show. <laughs> Maybe they were right. So that brings us to NWA TNA pay-per-view number two, as I mentioned. It opened with Jeff Jarrett against Scott Hall. Interesting. Uh, fair play to Jeff Jarrett. He at least lost on both of the first shows. I, I thought that was really interesting. But what I thought was more interesting is that Jeff Jarrett's character is apparently just that he is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, because he's he's booking himself. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. He's a he's the biggest badass in the room. He's slapping people. He's walking through people. He's calling the shots, starting his match right now. He's like Jarrett is being presented as a badass here, choking Jackie so Fargo backstage. Because, yeah, because the Jarrett I know is like you know WWF singy man loser who's like trying to cheat to win really. So I just, I think it's very, uh, or like later on, legend guy who's cheating to win and hiding behind a bunch of people, right? So this like weird middle ground of like Jared just being like, I'm the baddest man in the company <laughs> is so odd to me. Listen, he finally got control of his own booking. And even though he booked himself to lose, he was not booking himself not to be a badass. Because like, even though he's thrown out of the Battle Royal by Toby Keith and, and Scott Hall, he's screwed there. He's screwed by Toby Keith again here. So like, he can't even be beat clean by Scott Hall. But to be fair, like, I also don't blame him because who else? Yeah. Who else on this card do you have to be the focused main guy well it's ken and ken ends up being the focus main guy until jeff well, comes ken along. is the face who is the top heel <laughs> like it's jared it's all it's the only option you have is jared it's obviously buff bagwell <laughs> buff was over on that first show that's always the thing with buff he could do a good like 60 seconds 
Buff for 60 seconds mm. is good. Should have put buff in the X Division, but only for 60 seconds. He does, like, blockbusters and Canadian destroyers and gets eliminated from whatever match he's in. Yeah. But um, I actually liked this match. I thought it was... crowd was red hot. The crowd was super yeah. into it. I think that's what really helped it was, the, like, the crowd was fucking molten. And it was just, like, two stars doing star shit, so I thought it was pretty good. Also, like, my prevailing thought coming out of this match is, Scott Hall is so good. <laughs> Yeah. Like, every little thing he does, every little detail, every little, like, movement, all his, like, mannerisms, so good. Like, he's a really good wrestler. Yeah. This match was, like, the second best match on this card mm. by a significant amount. I did like the way that the show opened with, like, a full three-minute recap of everything that happened on the previous show. Yeah. Mike Tanay referring to Ed Ferrara as the opinionated Ed Ferrara. Yeah, the opinion. Oh, we forgot to... We've mentioned before the greatest line to come out of this entire show on the first show. Now this is my kind of sports entertainment. Oh, God. No. I refuse. As Was it Electra coming out? Was it Francine? Uh, I don't know. Now this is my kind of sports entertainment, baby. Uh, Cheeks defeated Frank Parker. You know what I love about this? Like the, the the whole concept of this show was that Jeff Jarrett came out early and he's such a badass he wants to fight Scott Hall right now. Which means that like technically they booked or scheduled Cheeks versus Frank Parker to be the show's opener. <laughs> I was absolutely devastated to learn that Cheeks was a heel. Yeah, you're supposed to boo him. No! <laughs> How can you boo that man? He was with the brown-eyed girl? I, You're a big fan of Cheeks? Brown eye, he was with the brown-eyed girl! Yeah. He, he had the jacket. He had that shitty top. <laughs> I love Cheeks. Well, I'm afraid you're never going to see him again. I'm devastated. He had the worst music I've ever heard in my life. He... Had a terrible jacket, the brown-eyed girl, and it was goddamn Cheeks. I liked when Mike today was like, oh, and you know, he's trained by the Andersons, Cheeks. You know, he's gonna, gonna grab a hold. He should have busted out the sickest spine buster. Also, the commentary team burying this the entire time. Yeah, like even Mike today when he said he's trained by the Andersons, he was like, I wonder if he's gonna, you know, grab a body part and work it over, and they laugh at us. It's like, okay. <laughs> They were just laughing at him this entire time. That's why I was like, how is Cheeks a heel? Uh, Frank Parker is apparently the big baby face in this match. Frank Parker, I'm pretty sure, wrestled again later on this show as David Young. <laughs> oh, they're two different people. <laughs> nope, that is the same person. Uh, during this match, and it happened on the first show as well, uh, Alicia Webb, Ryan Shamrock, and WWE came out and collected <laughs> money from somebody. Because she was fucking him. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's actually quite a good approach to, to, to hustle your money out. If someone didn't pay you, it's like, I'm going to walk out on national television and yeah. make you do it. I'm going to put you on the spot. I mean, to be fair, like, I admire the chutzpah of it to, to do it and, like, just swindle these people in front of everyone. It's great stuff. They deserve it. But also, like, why? Why is this happening? It goes nowhere. It's fine. <laughs> Legitimately, that's, that's probably going to be a catchphrase of this podcast. It goes nowhere. It's fine. JB is pulling it in these shows. <laughs> Who knew that Jeremy Borash was TNA's most eligible bachelor? Listen, it's it's the very ni- late 90s Backstreet Boys haircut that's doing it for everyone's like, Apparently oh, JB. so. Fair play for JB. Brian Christopher against Cake Rush. Yeah, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> it's a very bad, boring match. Yeah. <laughs> it brought us to the Miss TNA Lingerie Battle Royal, which was also just 
unbearable. One of the worst things I've ever witnessed. Absolutely unbearable to watch. It's just truly awful. <sighs> Ed Ferrara molesting. Well, that happened on the first show. He was grabbing. Yeah, that was Don West. Oh, yes, Don West grabbing people on the first show. But like, like Don West was like doing it as like a bit for the show. Ed Ferrara just grabbed a full fucking handful and kept it. Wrestling never changes, does it? Wrestling stinks. <laughs> Apollo defeated David Young. Oh, in a match between two of the young talents in TNA. Yeah, two of the hot young prospects, two of the young chippers in TNA wrestling. David Young is actually a very good wrestler. He didn't show it here, really, but... Of course, being way ahead of the time by having a cuckolding angle. Yeah, I, I like the way the entire... Like, going back to everything in the show is actually about how this is just bad. Like, the the, the entire David Young character is that he's just terrible... And his his manager hates him. <laughs> and it's like, what? I, I gotta admit, I do love her little, like, post-match segment where she's in the ring celebrating. <laughs> Actually, before we go into the next match, I want to give huge credit to Goldilocks. She's great. She is great! Like, so good. Top-notch. Well done, Goldilocks. Like, great interviewer for the baby faces. Helps carry it. Has a personality. And doesn't take shit from the heels. <laughs> yeah. And like every time the heel is saying something stupid, she's just like rolling her eyes. She's she's like questioning him on it. It's it's not the like just robot. It's not the I ask you a question, I put the microphone in front of your face and disappear. It's like I'm an active participant in this. I'm interviewing you. If you say something stupid, I'm going to say it's stupid. Yeah, like great. She felt like an actual part of the show instead of a, a glorified microphone stand. And yeah, yeah. I just I wanted to give a, a good shout out to Goldilocks who killed it. Uh, the Dops refused to wrestle. <laughs> The worst part of this is like Mike and Don on commentary were like, who are the baby faces to head for Ara's heel? Like every time they would do anything remotely gay, it's just like, ah, this is an outrage. They should keep this to themselves. How dare they? The big baby face commentator is going, listen, I think it's fine when they do it in their own household. (laughs) But the minute it's in public... And listen, if you want to point out the double standard, you had Alicia Webb extorting people for money earlier in the show, and they had no problem with that. So, if you want to point out the double standard, there was the Miss TNA lingerie battle royale <laughs> earlier on the show. But no, two men kiss each other, and like the fact is, it's all played for gay panic. It's all played for just the worst of instincts. Oh, you know what I, f- I find very funny. Go on. That both TNA and Ring of Honor on their first shows had gay panic heels. Ugh. Why? 2002. <laughs> the match was pretty good. I'm fine. It yeah, I was going to say, good. the match was actually, like, I really, I enjoyed the match. You can't go wrong with Chris Harris and James Storm. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, proto America's Most Wanted. Uh, they really cool upset, too. It would establish, I think, the tag team division on a better, much better foot than the, the Johnsons against Psychosis and, <laughs> and James Storm I match think did. Also, this was a bit of a course correction show. But it was, it was taped the same night. Yeah, but like, you get what I mean though? It's like, there was less of the shtick out there. It was more of just the wrestlers. But it, like, it wasn't good. <laughs> I don't want to say that, but like, you know. We didn't have the Johnsons. We didn't have the Elvises. We didn't have the other fucking terrible gimmick that I forgot. The Duffs. They refused to wrestle. But like, most of the matches on the show, you had Jarrett and Hall, you had uh, K-Cross and Christopher, you had Apollo and David Young, the main event, this. They were all just straight wrestling matches as opposed to just dopes doing shtick. Well, actually, most of the matches in the first show were straight wrestling matches as well, but just with shtick and memes. Hmm. And um, I think 
everything from this point on the show was fucking rocked too. So yeah, like you see, this is this is the TNA problem down to a T. Because if this like Ken Shamrock and Malice angle and particularly the main event didn't exist, I think everybody could just write off TNA. You know, you could just go like, this is garbage. I don't need to watch it. It has no potential. It has no identity. It's terrible. Whereas you have these two segments at the end that that cruelly offer hope. Because it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, if they actually get their shit together, they have these cool wrestlers. You know, Malice and Ken Shamrock's a cool match. That's a good angle. And then they have these great wrestlers in the main event just having a kick-ass main event match. Showing, like, the potential of everything TNA could be if they got out of their own way, if they stopped doing too much nonsense, if they stopped trying to be something that wrestling used to be and started trying to be something that wrestling needed in the moment this is the kind of TNA that would catch on. This is the kind of TNA that would generate buzz. This is the TNA everybody wanted as an alternative to WWE. And I feel like I'm going to do this exact same rant like 700 different times over the history of the podcast. And it's almost reassuring to know that it's right here in the first episode too. Uh, Especially like the Malice Shamrock angle, which showed that like it's not just the X Division. Mm. They do have the ability to book good wrestling stuff. They just, they don't. <laughs> yeah, they just don't. That's the thing. And it's, it, it, they don't for the worst reasons, which I just touched on. They're like, they're just trying to be something else. They're trying to pander to what wrestling used to be. They're trying to pander to an audience that used to watch. They're trying to harken back to an old era of wrestling. The time has already, by 2002, begun to move by. Instead of like being like, well, who are we? What do we do? What's cool about us? Which, like, fair play to Ring of Honor at the very beginning. Ring of Honor had that, you know? Mm. We're the technical wrestling. We're the honor. We're the respect. We're the bringing back tradition to professional wrestling. They, they had a sense of who they were that the TNA just never did. Yeah. The, this kick-ass mile segment where, where Ricky Steamboat's coming out talking to Ken Shamrock about how great the belt is and how important the being champion is and it's all great before James Mitchell comes out and he's like, all you crackers <gasps> out here. The <laughs> best <laughs> moment in TNA history so far. Where he's like, all you crackers in the crowd, you shut up. Yeah, he comes out to organs, calls the crowd crackers, and then cuts a promo about his god, not your god. And he does the little misdirect where Slash comes out and everyone's like, oh, you know, Slash is this guy and Ken Shamrock's going to Don West him. didn't believe it for a second. Yeah, Don West is like, it's got to be Malice. It's Malice. Of course it's Malice. It's like, oh, it's not Malice. And then Malice shows. I actually kind of like that. I like when announcers kind of see through the heels act because it doesn't quite make the baby with the face look stupid. Actually, it does kind of make the baby with the face look stupid, but still. But like, also, you know... Don was the fan, you know? He's like, oh, it's gonna be Malice. It's yeah. Malice, obviously. It'll be Malice. And then, it, oh, it wasn't Malice. And he wasn't like, oh, it's not Malice. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he was like, oh, yeah, okay then. And then, oh, it was Malice. Like, Don West was vindicated in the end. Yeah. Which is the most important thing here, that Don West is right. Everyone else being wrong is fine. If Don is right, that's all that matters. Except when he molested <laughs> that woman in the, the Don't you worry about it. Let's keep moving. And the, 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 the homophobic stuff. Which, to be fair, I will put the homophobic stuff on him because clearly it was the story they were telling. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yes. We'll give them a big pass. I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. But... <laughs> Not Ed Ferrar. <laughs> well, to be fair, he was very progressive. He was like, you should shut up. Let them kiss each other. Yeah. You know, you're not wrong. Ed was like into it. And Joel Gerdner also completely into it. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to our main event again the moment of hope in which AJ Styles defeated Psychosis Jerry Lynn and Loki in a double elimination match to become the first X Division champion and this match kicked so much ass and the match type was unique and cool 
Yeah, because there was rumblings that they were going to do a tournament beforehand, uh, which this, I guess, technically is, but it's just a tournament all built into one match. A tournament of fucking losers. Yeah, except Psychosis. Actually, no, Psychosis lost to the first show, too. <laughs> he lost to the first show as well. He lost to the Johnsons. They really... And, like, you, there's no excuse. They wrote both these shows back-to-back. What are you doing? Why are you having all these people lose? Technically, this match should have been all three of the Flying Elvises and the two Johnsons. <laughs> yeah, the crown the first exhibition champion. Yeah. Raw Johnson is the first. <laughs> Fuck. In a better world. But yeah, this match ruled, particularly when it got down to the final exchanges between Jerry Lynn and AJ Styles, where it just kicked ass. Like, those two guys just went out there, did everything they could, crowd was going nuts. It was obviously the best match on both of these shows by far. It was the only match that really got time on both of these shows by far. It's interesting. Both these shows were formatted to have like long 40 minute main events, which I find interesting. It's just like, oh, you know, we'll just finish the rest of the show with a match and get to the finish line. I thought Styles and Lynn were really great in this. I thought Key was really cool in this, but it's really funny to see, like, prototype Key before he realizes that he's, like, a killer. Yeah. Um, even Psychosis was pretty great in this, but he was clearly the fourth man. I thought it was eerily fun to see, like, the crowd get into it, because at first they weren't really going for it, but as soon as AJ... Was it AJ and Psychosis the first two in? Uh, yeah. Yeah, as soon as they started going, like the crowd was like, oh shit, alright, we're, we're with this now. Which was really fun to watch. I just wanted to mention it real quick. This main event had three of the worst theme songs I have ever fucking heard in my life. Uh, you see, there's a lot of very good... Th- like th- These shows have My World, which is a great theme song. It has Scott Hall's Marvelous Me, which is a great theme song. Which is the best song of all time. It's really up there. And uh, the New Church theme, I can't remember, was it the full New Church theme or was it just like a... No, it was just the... And then silence. So yeah, it was the intro to the New Church theme, so they didn't quite have that yet. But then every other theme song on the show was terrible. I, AJ's theme is great. Born and raised in the USA. USA. Loki's theme was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it started up, like it was like, that up just going, dun, dun, dun. And then, like, he made his way, like, a meter from the ring, and it went into, like, a metal riff. Yeah. Psychosis's... Psychosis's... <laughs> sucked. Just bad. And Jerry Lynn's was, like, nothing. <laughs> it was, like, like a little... It wasn't even metal. It's Jerry Lynn. You could have just had a guy go... <laughs> Which is eventually what his theme would become. But it's, like, yeah, yeah nothing. But there was two good songs. <laughs> I'm putting uh, AJ Styles' theme in there as well. There's three good songs. Born and Raised in the USA is a terrible song too. Born and Raised in the USA. Also, the, the intro theme is also great. So it has that going for it. Yeah. That one is... Uh, that actually, that theme does slap. As the kids say. And that brings us to the end of the second show where AJ Styles is crowned division champion. Mike Tanay has an incredible call at the end of that match where he's like, remember the name, ladies and gentlemen, AJ Styles, the future of our sport has arrived. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier where it's, it's very clear that they are positioning AJ as like the, the, the next promising star that you should really pay attention to coming out of these first two shows as opposed to the rest, which is just like weird nostalgia and Jeff Jarrett and Ken Shamrock doing stuff. But like AJ is the TNA guy. And Alice, come on. But like all those other guys, like Malice was in WCW. AJ Styles is fair enough. So was AJ, but for like two matches, he's the guy that you're supposed to come out of this show feeling like, whoa, AJ Styles. That's he's special. Yeah, and I think they did a good job of it. Yeah, despite the the first pay per view, despite having him being pinned by an Elvis. Yeah, but to be fair, hopefully that's setting up. I see. I don't know these things. I I legitimately have no clue if that sets up an ex title match, but I hope it does. You would hope so, but. 
<laughs> so yeah, that's those are that's the first month of TNA history. That is June two thousand two. What a year! I mean, what a month! What a day! A lot going on. It's a it's a weird company already. <laughs> it's a very weird company. I'll give it that for sure. Yeah, it's a company that's just like throwing stuff at the wall and doesn't quite know what it's doing. But you know what? It's trying. Mm. I get this. This uh, company is all topsy-turvy. I guess you could say it is Malice in Wonderland. Very good. I see what you did there. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's the end of the po- Goodbye. <laughs> There's, uh, like, I, lo- I love the era of gossip. Like, in the P- uh, like take all of this with a grain of salt from the era. But it, you know the way there's all the stories in, in, in TEW games where they're just like, oh, so-and-so did this and he was bad. And you don't hear about that in modern wrestling. There's a story in, in one of the Torch newsletters. Observers say Joel Gertner spent most of his day trying to pick up women, bragging about his weight loss, and fishing for compliments for his promo. The Jarrett's have made it clear they're not high on his future in TNA. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get that kind of gossip anymore, and I'm kind of sad. Do you think, uh, how many bits of gossip were on the Tony Khan <laughs> dirt sheet thread? I, w- I, want, I want TK being like, I thought this guy was loud. <laughs> You know what, I'm going to extend the invitation for Wednesday War Games. TK, you ever want to come on the podcast to talk about TNA? Open invite. Listen, he's clearly a fan. He put the um the, the Christian theme on his show. He loved Christian TNA, Ron. So he's a big... T- if yeah. you want to come and talk about Christian TNA, TK, you're, you're more yeah. than welcome. You can come on for the whole arc if you want. So we will be back in two weeks with coverage of July 2002. Will TNA survive? Who knows? I'm pretty sure it's... I'm, I'm giving it six months. But that's the thing. Jeff Jarrett still does the routine. Like, everyone said we'd just die. Everyone said we wouldn't survive. They didn't. But we'll get to that in future episodes. Multiple times they didn't. If you would like more of us, you can support us on Patreon with the link in the description. Wow. We have a watch-along up of NWATNA pay-per-view number one in our, our $10 tier. A written review as well. And coming next week, next Friday, we'll have a Monday War Games episode number one where we'll talk about the January 4th, 2010 episodes of Impact and Raw. Also, you can get our, our show notes for this podcast as well as our, the spreadsheet of our star ratings, which is on the $1 tier. I can assure you, they're already wacky. Yeah. So you can look at our, our numbers and see if you want to cherry pick stuff out of these shows. Uh, you can see what you want to watch. So you can support us there. We'll see We'll see you in two weeks uh, in this feed for, as I said, July 2002. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. I don't have a goodbye yet, but I'll work on it.